So my first thing was Miss Bournemouth in 2006. I did that um, and I won the second year. So I was titled Miss Bournemouth. Then I went on to compete at Miss England in the finals. And then I was introduced to um, Miss American Dream Girl, which was the biggest um, American model search at the time. You know, there was money through the pageants and through the competitions that they did on the beach and things like that. And then there was money at the tables to be made for just sitting there and being pretty. Um, And then there was Coke and there was so much Coke. Um, My sister was 10 years old and she was sexually assaulted by a um, elder um, male family friend, very close family friend, yeah. Been um, a lengthy journey really between binge eating, um, anorexia and um, bulimia, yeah. And um, she told me about the money that she was making and I was like, yes, let's go sign me up. The waiters used to like add a naught and things like that when they were putting the money through. Like, yeah, it was was a real um, operation between the girls and the waiters and the management especially. I know that's weird and twisted, but it was what it was and it was fun sometimes. Animals shouldn't be bred into this world to be used as a product. Anyway, that that is our stance. Um, Tell me where my dog is now. (laughs) (laughs) But much, 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 with much more volume. All right. So we've been trying to get more women on the channel. It is not easy. There's not that many women who've been in trouble with the law. Shah has had four arrests, theft, possession, criminal damage, and aggravated trespass throughout her life. We're going to get to those. Um, The final one was rooted in altruistic reasons as part of campaigning against animal cruelty, which is something my parents are really behind as well. So they're going to love this. All right. Huge thank you for coming on. Yeah, pleasure to be here. It's going to be quite a journey, isn't it? Because you've had some serious ups and downs in between all this other stuff. Yeah. And there's some harrowing moments as well. So whereabouts in the country are you from originally? So I'm from Bournemouth originally. Yeah, South Coast. And what was it like growing up there? It was nice. We had an amazing upbringing on the beach. You know, there's some beautiful beaches down there. We went to good schools. Um... My mum provided for us really well. So, yeah, it was nice to begin with, yeah. What's your earliest memories? Um, my dad, my biological father left when I was one year old. So, although I didn't remember that, my um, earliest memories are of that taking shape in my life and growing up. Um, so, my two sisters are older than me. My sister's biological father brought me up as his own, couldn't adopt me because the system wouldn't let him when I was two years old because my mum and him weren't together anymore. Um, so those are the earliest memories and my mum's friends and their kids and just, yeah, growing up and having a, a relatively normal life and just, um, 
my mum was very open and honest about my biological father leaving, not really about the reasoning behind it, but just that it happened and that was it. So there was never what I thought any sort of, um, you know, hidden secrets or anything about that. But. So a lot of people have interviewed them when a step parent comes in, there's often cruelty and abuse. But in your case, was this, was he a nice guy? Yeah, he was, yeah, he was the very best. Yeah, he was lovely, very lovely guy. Um, yeah, he wasn't the best dad in the world all the time, but he was a kind, kind person. Yeah, so that was good. <laughs> How were you at school? Um, I hated school. Yeah, I had a really horrible time. <laughs> well, how, um, how did that begin? So primary school, um, it ha- happened in secondary school as well. I would, I would flip in between being accepted into, into circles and then being the very much the odd one out and being bullied for that. Um, and yeah, being a target for a couple of different reasons, um, being skinny, anything, anything that, you know, kids can get hold of, they will to, to bully, won't they? But, um, um yeah the boys were bullies as well at primary school I remember getting punched in the stomach at one point by some lads and then moving on to secondary school I became a bit more of a bully myself and flitted in between yeah being quite aggressive and angry at the world so taking it out on other people were you aggressive and angry at the world because you'd been bullied and you know some of the people I've interviewed the bullying has caused them to like turn and just start giving it back. Yeah, I think you definitely build up a bit of a an armor. Um, but who knows really back then because we I don't think we really explore our childhood trauma at that age. So I wouldn't yeah, I didn't know then. Um, but I expect that definitely had an influence, being bullied myself and then just wanting to lash out. So Was there any other source of childhood trauma for you? Um yeah, there was when I was eight years old. So I was still in um, primary school and um, my sister was 10 years old and she was sexually assaulted by a, um elder um, male family friend, very close family friend, yeah. <clears throat> so that was pretty... Um, How did you find that out? Life-shaping. I was in the room at the time. I was about from here to to there when it uh, happened away I was supposed to be the person that it was it happened to so the story goes is that um my mum had a um had a good friend and um they had parents and we went there for uh the Christmas season I don't know I don't think it was Christmas day it might have been boxing day or something like that and so there were three of their of his grandchildren and then his daughter and her husband and his wife was also there as well at the dinner table and then there was my mum um her boyfriend at the time this Italian guy um and then my two sisters and I and after dinner I think I believe it was after dinner there was a Wendy house in the garden at the bottom of the garden which sounds fucking creepy already doesn't it um and we all um this guy um and my sister and I um and his three grandchildren went into the Wendy house to watch a movie and my sister and I had a bit of a argument about who was going to be under the blanket with this guy and she won the argument because she was older so she always got her own way and um so she was under the blanket and he sexually assaulted her and apparently at the time she was mouthing to me 
something along the lines of, you know, help me or something like that. And I was absolutely oblivious until, um, until she immediately after, without us knowing or being aware of what happened, kind of shot out the door, went and told my mum because my mum was always inviting of us to be honest with her, which was great. She was very approachable about anything. Um, so I told my mum straight away. And then I just remember walking up to the back up to the house and just seeing my mum punch this guy in the face and then lots of screaming, lots of shouting and just getting in the back of the car. And that, it was very highly emotional. Yeah, very... Yeah. So in the aftermath of that then, what was it like for you and your sister? <clears throat> Horrendous. Um, so this guy got, um, <clears throat> he got a six month suspended sentence. That's all he got. Pathetic. Yeah. And she got, I believe it was around the £2,000 mark for compensation for what happened to her, despite the fact that it's it's shaped her whole entire life. Um and so we, so it was two years until it went to court. It took two years. So that was pretty a grueling process. And then we were very young, you know, I was 10 years old and going to court and testifying and all of that stuff. So that was pretty, um, yeah, traumatic, but I almost didn't really understand it at the time. So I just sort of went along with it, you know, <laughs> you know, and supported her through it. Um, until it took a, a real toll on, on the worst. And sadly, she, had even more of a um, terrible time with sexual attacks. Um, yeah, escalated beyond belief. And then by 14, your eating disorder started. Yeah, so I was at school, um, just choosing my GCSEs, which was dance and drama. I was um, into performing arts and... Um, my friend was um, making herself sick and introduced me to it and was like, we can do this and be skinny and beautiful. <laughs> so I was like, cool, <laughs> let's do it. Um, um, so it started with um, bulimia so and binge eating as well. So I would binge and then um, be sick. Um, and then I would restrict my diet. And f- it's been um, a lengthy journey really between binge eating, um, anorexia and um, bulimia, yeah. And you wanted to be a singer and a model? Yeah, that was the be all and end all for me, yeah. I wanted to, um, I wanted to be a singer, first of all. Um, And uh, that was really hard, of course. And I had a friend in school who was, doing very well with it. She had a bit more money behind her with her her parents being a bit more wealthy than us. So she had all the equipment and the microphone and the amp and everything. Mm -hmm. I was very jealous of her, but mum scraped together and got it all for me. And I I did my demo CD with this (laughs) very dodgy guy, (laughs) very dodgy guy, um, who I met through a couple of school friends when I was a bit younger and we used to hang out with him all the time. I think that was probably my first experience with uh, um, a, a pervert. Yeah. So bullying, <laughs> predators, perverts coming in, coming into your life and your sister's lives. Is is this? Do you think starting to give you a sense of injustice? Even though you you probably aren't thinking about it in terms of that age, but 
is it laying the foundation for the sense of injustice that you've got obviously you know to help the animals and stuff like that now oh that's such a good question um yeah yeah quite possibly has has been weaved into my journey here because it seems like you know you you guys are getting brutalized even by the system whereby the system does not give this guy an appropriate punishment to me that would create a huge sense of injustice what happened to your sister so the thing is when something happens to us and we and there is an enormous amount of injustice like that I am without speaking my own sister's feelings and thoughts around it although of course we've spoken numerous times um she must have felt that it wasn't bad enough for it to have been for him to have been punished the way that he deserved to be she may have felt all sorts of different feelings like maybe it wasn't that bad or you know I don't know anything like that and then because of how because of the longevity longevity of trauma like that it doesn't leave you ever and therefore you're in a vulnerable state and so when the following attacks took place she was already really vulnerable she was 10 when that happened to her and then she was 13 and she was gang raped numerous times by a group of Portuguese um, men in Bournemouth and that was for her friend to get alcohol it's for her school friend to get alcohol from these guys because she wasn't old enough so she took my sister to these houses and the guys took her in another room and that went on for a few years that went on until oh she God. was 17 years old so that was four years of gang rape just by that that gang the next couple of years for her were um escapism free drugs you know anything she could get her hands on and all sorts of nasties and then um there was a another um there's a caribbean community in bournemouth and um there was a group of men there who also took her to a house, a different group of men, and also gang raped her. Mm. So, so the vulnerability that's taken place, that's been influenced by the trauma that she's already been through. And how do you escape that? Like, give her a moment before she is able to, you know, um, strengthen and, and, you know. So were you in a perpetual state of bracing for this to happen again at that age no what we saw at what I saw at home as the youngest and as the younger sister was my sister who was in a lot of pain projecting that in very many different forms and when we were babies she and I mean now she does but she loved me, you know, enormously. It was hilarious. There's pictures of her getting in my cot and giving me kisses and things like that. You know, it was ridiculous. Mum couldn't change her nap- my nappy without her and things like that. And so when this happened to her, and we've had a conversation about this, a real open, real conversation. She says, all that I wanted was to control you so that nothing like this would ever happen to you. And that manifested itself in, in a really toxic way sometimes and so we had some hideous rows 
and you know um wardrobe doors would get smashed in and things would get smashed and she would run away um regularly and the police would bring her home and yeah and I you know I saw this behavior and I saw the drugs and I saw the runaway and I you know I I did all of that myself over time perhaps not to the extent but my trauma was nowhere near to the extent of what she went through yeah yeah so at 17 you got kicked out of sixth form yeah, so I didn't want to go to sixth form. I was adamant that I didn't want to go down that route. I wanted to be a singer. I wanted to be a model. That's all I wanted to do was apply to modeling agencies. Um, but my mum said, give it a go for me. So I did. Um, and after six months, I told my teacher to, and then, yeah, got asked to leave sixth form. So. <laughs> was that a relief for you? Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was very happy. Um, I did, I was with my first love. So that was the only, that was the only thing really keeping me there, to be honest. Cause I'd, yeah, it's found my first love and we were smitten. But oh. other than that, I was like, yeah, this is question. Let's go. <laughs> what was your plan, your life plan then when you finished sixth form? All I wanted to do was be a model. That was it. Um, and so I was, yeah, I was trying to, to, um, try and find out about the industry but that's dodgy as well um as you can imagine and one of my first photo shoots um was with this a pedophile I was well I was 17 years old but um you know very 17 year olds back then are not like 17 year olds now they're just not and I was young and naive and vulnerable and went for a what I thought was a fashion slash fashion glamoury photo shoot with no nudity and ended up being a topless shoot he he managed to get me to get my boobs out so that was that first experience of it being um a bit of a dangerous industry um plus the fact that I wasn't, you know, I get to, got told that I wasn't thin enough or wasn't quirky enough, like whatever, you know, whatever it was that day that someone felt it was, yeah, it was that. So there was lots of trying and going in and out of London for castings and, yeah. Over the years then, as a kid and a teenager, were you wondering about your biological father? Or was yeah. It, was you? Yeah. What kinds of things were you wondering? So when I was 12 years old, I wanted to contact him. I made the... Um, decision that I wanted to contact him so it was very emotional that day and my sister said we'll we'll ask mum with you um I, <laughs> I remember it vividly and we went downstairs and I think mum already knew and so she had his number and we called him and I was crying at the time because I was very overwhelmed I think and didn't know how to manage this type of emotion and he got on the phone and I said hello and he said why are you in such a state so I said, probably because I haven't seen you for 10 and a half years. And he said, okay, put your mum back on the phone. And that was that until I was 18 years old. And I decided to prank call him a few times just to hear his voice. <laughs> when, when you got off the phone that first time, yeah, uh, did, did you feel he was being abrupt? Oh, it was horrible. So cutthroat and cold, yeah. If it wasn't for my mum and my sisters being dearly affectionate to me, you know, and my mum providing the warmth and the conditions that a child needs, I would have been a, a wreck, yeah. So what? how did you rationalise his coldness then? My dad, my, my sister's dad, who I call dad, him, because I already had a dad and it was okay. Um, so it was sad, but 
yeah, back then we had we didn't really have I we didn't really have the tools that we do now as um a family to know how to deal with trauma really so it was just right we're strong we're gonna get through this on to the next journey and yeah off we go but then he comes in back into your life when you're age 18 yeah what happens then how did that how was that arranged so uh it was about the december my birthday was in the february so we spent like six weeks talking to each other because he rang the number back of course and my answer phone says, hi, this is Charlie, <laughs> message after the tone. So I was a bit busted. And he said, you know, I'd like to talk to you. So we started chatting and then, yeah, I went to visit him. Can you describe the visit? Um, yeah, so the first visit, um, it was nice. Um, he was very extravagant, very... Um, uh what's the word i can't really remember the words um charismatic he, mm. <laughs> that's too nice <laughs> he was just quirky like very yeah. like obviously very into high fashion like what he was wearing and like you know had this like um had this like persona that he had money um his girlfriend at the time was 20 years younger than him and my mum had always said you know he'd had I think he had five wives before her so um yeah he liked money or at least people thinking that he had money and that came across immediately you know the house was very like um high fashion looking um and we went for a meal my boyfriend at the time came with me so the first experience was okay yeah it was the second experience and that got dodgy what happened though so i went up on my own this time um so it was i guess a couple of months after my 18th birthday um and i got to the house and he had planned for us to go out for the night and so we went to um a club in london um a very swanky place and um he was very showy offy, you know, with like flashing his, his money at the bar and things like that so that we could get served. Like he wanted me to know that he was important and that people thought he was important. Um, but he oddly and gradually throughout the night just um, showed behavior that was just inappropriate. Um, he held my hand, um, you know, like as we were walking through the crowd or we were getting a drink or we were dancing or I was going to the toilet or something. He would hold my hand and obviously there were people looking and he didn't stop them from thinking that we were together. So he didn't make any big, you know, weird moves other than holding his daughter's hand, which was weird anyway, because I didn't know the guy. Did he encourage you to use drugs? Yeah, very quickly on. Yeah, so um, a few months down the line, um, he was getting married to this woman. I went to her Hindu and um, we did some coke together. And then within, I think it was, yeah, that night that he found out that um, I would do it. And I found out that he did love it, loved drugs. Um and that went with being, you know, with the rich persona of London, Coke was a, you know, normality. So that escalated. And um, by did, you, the- did you think that that was strange or were you just thinking that, you know, I'm high on Coke, this is all cool? 
like people do when they're on coke? Like, I just thought this could be cool because I was eight. I was, I was, I don't know how old I was by this time. I was a little bit older by this time. 20s. Yeah, maybe like just before I was 20 or 20 years old, like a young 20. Um, and so I guess I was like enjoying the cool sides of the fact that I could go there and party and be loved by parent figures at the same time. I don't know, that's weird and twisted, but it was what it was and it was fun sometimes. Um, it didn't, it, it was gradual that my intuition was like, mm, that's not quite right, mm, that's not quite right. And by the end, he was pushing my head down to do a, a big line of cocaine. And he gave me my first pill as well, actually, yeah. Actually. Yeah. I think I did that before I did coke. Yeah, I did. We was at his house and we had been drinking all night and then all of a sudden him and his missus bought out a pill and we all took a pill, but I threw mine up straight away and went to bed because I fell asleep. (laughs) Yeah. So the modeling then, you got into Miss American Dream Girl five times? Yes. um, And his, his... Mrs. was a was a model back in the day, like she and she was really into um editorial modeling. Like she really knew her stuff, she knew the industry, she she was a um distributor for her own brand anyway. Um and so and he was a photographer, not that he ever photographed me, but he knew the industry. So that was helpful um at the time because they um paid for me to have photo shoots and things like that. Um but yeah, so my first thing was Miss Bournemouth in 2006. I did that um, and I won the second year. So I was titled Miss Bournemouth. Then I went on to compete at Miss England in the finals. Um, and then I was introduced to um, Miss American Dream Girl, which was the biggest um, American model search at the time that there was. So it was huge. And um they used to fly the contestants out to the Bahamas, Nassau and the Bahamas, <coughs> and they would rent the um, the hotel out and they would, we would stay there for a, a, a nine days competing on stage and, um, and partying. Really. You didn't end up on any of these infamous billionaires islands in the Bahamas, did you? Yeah, so... You did? Um, I don't know his... Can I say his name? Is it, are you on about who killed he's E? Des- nah, he's a designer. This guy's a designer. His name's Peter Nygaard. He's a Oh my God, you ended up on his island. Are you joking? Do you know? I've interviewed his son. Pardon? I've are you being serious? <laughs> yes. Stop it. Yes. No way. Yeah. Ooh. Kai, his son's name is. Wow. His own son saw what a monster he was and went against him. Oh, there was He's some... in prison right now. Oh, is Wait, he? Waiting for extradition from Canada to America. I'm very glad visited him we'll oh, take that out sorry. Oh. I'm glad my intuition was right on this one because you were at Nygaard's Island oh yeah I was in his I was in all of every, I was in oh my god in this just changes it. everything yeah yeah trust me like Holy when shit. I tell my friends about this story like I have to like try and find photos of the island to tell them about the island and how magnificent is that and then just trying to tell them the details of how mental it was we've got to go over this slowly alright alright <laughs> Why? What? What event was at his island, or why were we invited to his photo island? Shoots. A photo shoot. Was, was yeah. it for this Hawaiian? Um, the this is Miss American Dream Girl. So this is in Nassau in the Bahamas, yeah. and in on the actual main island is where they do the this um, the stage shows and the um, 
the pageant, the actual competitions. But whilst you're out there, there's several photographers out there. And so you get the opportunity to shoot with these guys and they are pushy beyond belief. Oh my God. So they'll do from anything from bikini to porn, so nude open leg, and they would push and push and push until they knew that they'd reached their limit and that was where they was going to go on the photo shoot. Um, yeah, luckily, I I'm, I don't think, yeah, I don't think, oh, actually, no, I did do topless. Yeah, he ended up, he ended up, did persuade, persuading me and I don't have he? those, this photographer and I don't have those pictures. He has those. So yeah, it was all, it, yeah, it was all very. So arriving at the pleasure. island then, it's quite impressive, isn't it? The way it's, it's structured and the statues yeah. and stuff. It's, it's absolutely, yeah, it's sensational did they take your passport right away because a lot of the girls who've complained about things that have happened horrible things they couldn't like they took their passports and drugged them up and all that kind of thing i can't remember whether they took our passport or not um and he wasn't there at the time so it was just photographers and models at the time yeah um but where we were changing was the gym um and um it was all mirrors all of it and it just was like we was all getting naked in there and stuff like yeah like there was 100 percent cameras like you could feel it and yeah and obviously security wise like the place was covered so um yeah I think I was probably mindful whilst I was there but also just yeah upon reflection and obviously learning what I've learned about paedophiles over the last however many years of my adult life I've been like shit was really dodgy yeah so do you think you were like you had your head in the lion's mouth oh well there was a lion there there's a there's a big massive have you seen it yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) um (laughs) I've got pictures I've got so many pictures of me on that island I'm gonna gonna need someone else for the trailer I've got so many pictures of me on that island how many times were you at the island just once just the once and he wasn't there the entire duration but we we partied like what were the parties like um yeah hard I mean that day we were all shooting so it was a it was a lot of work on the island but um we was we were still partying it was mad like alcohol only drugs no loads of cocaine loads of cocaine um the first year i went there i didn't do it and i was so against drugs and my friend did some coke and didn't get home until like 10 in the morning to my hotel room and i was fuming i was so upset and then the next year i was like yeah <laughs> so yeah um so the judges, there was 50 judges at each time. So it was, there were two pageants a year. So there was the summer finals and then the, and then the, I don't know, final finals, world finals, can't remember what it's called. And the 50 judges, and most of them came over from America. They were club owners, doctors, plastic surgeons, all of them were wealthy. Some of them are my friends now, you know, and some of them I trusted. And, um, some of them were, not trustworthy um I hung out with my friends who were my friends and never put me in a 
in a dangerous situation. Not even one of the guys that was older who we had a bit of a thing for. He he never went there with me. But there were older guys who were probably more wealthy and they liked us to be lady luck. So we would go in... Because in Nassau, the hotels have all got casinos in them. It's a bit like mini Vegas. And so we would all go and sit at the casino tables and we would be their lady luck. We were playing with $5,000 chips at a time. Like I just wanted to take one of those chips <laughs> and bust, but... Um, so we would make money, you know, there was money through the pageants and through the competitions that they did on the beach and things like that. And then there was money at the tables to be made for just sitting there and being pretty. Um, and then there was Coke and there was so much Coke. Um, yeah, like me and my friends, the guys, and then, I mean, it was typically the the three English birds that were out there on the gear over the American girls. A couple of the American girls were doing it, but we were the, you know, we, we had the stamina. Um, and that was, yeah, that was a ride, you know, like two hours before I was supposed to be on stage one day, I was, yeah, like I'd been off my nut all day. We were doing tequila shots off people, off each other's bodies on the beach, you know, and, partying in paradise it was amazing but then I had to be on stage and look prim and proper so it took me five times to win a title (laughs) and by then they were just like just give her a bloody title (laughs) please yeah so you said your discernment was such then you clicked up with the people who weren't the predators but there were predators there were there also girls there who looked like they were underage you perhaps you know (laughs) there was there was definitely some inappropriate behavior going on. Like there was, um, oh yeah. The more, sometimes the more you talk, the more you remember as well. And there was, it's come out now about the pamper parties and all this stuff. So there was warnings about, um, girls being raped, like some years, like the year before, I think I first went there. This girl was, um, dragged down wherever by one of the, um, chefs in one of the kitchens one of Nygaard's chefs um no I don't think so um I don't know whether anything happened at Nygaard's because I can't remember um vividly but I I do remember feeling very uncomfortable and seeing things that made me uncomfortable seeing the girls do things that made me uncomfortable for them like but what? Who, who was I to say what were they doing going further in photo shoots that that than they had in, intended to um you know and um Body language and touch and things like that, you know, all of it just takes a place, doesn't it, around like predator culture. And I can see it, like, obviously, I saw it when I was fucking eight years old with my sister. Um, and so, yeah, it was unnerving. It was definitely risky. And I think that there was another time when I was there and this other girl claimed that this other guy raped her as well. I don't like the word claim this girl had said that someone had raped her. And so, yeah, um, it went down. And that was on the main island as well. So during, at Nygaard, during the photo shoots, it was, it was just dodgy. And there were so many different compartments to this island, you know, like you would have to go down this like rocky water slide to get to the next part. And the beds were suspended over the water, the actual beds, you know, the baths were just rock pools. Like, so if you wanted a bath or a shower, you're going to fucking go in the, like, like 
yeah, it was like Robinson Crusoe, but like, yeah, it really was. Like, absolutely, yeah, mind-blowing. Like, if it wasn't owned by a pedo, it would be a wonderful, sensational place, yeah. Did you interact with any famous people by this point? Over there. Or any time in your life up to this point? Um, I don't think so. Any famous models were going to these locations? No. I mean, there's probably models there that have done extremely well. Like, uh, the girl that I went with, she ended up marrying her, uh, going over to America and marrying her um, agent. And then, yeah. So it, it happens. I mean... um. Yeah, she she did really well. Like the girl, the girls, some of them did really well. So, yeah. So, what was your life like in your mid twenties? <coughs> mid twenties or early twenties? Then, because didn't you start to a childminding business? Yeah. So I was um, twenty years old, and my best friend at the time had a son, a young son, who was um, a toddler. And she had some serious mental health issues. And so I helped out quite a lot with him. Um, even though I was young myself, I was still really good with kids. So helped out a lot and was having him often. Um, and so decided to make it a childminding thing. Um, so took on some other kids and then, um, took on a child with autism and decided to quit because it was too hard work. And I was like, whoa, this is a lot for a 21 year old. Yeah. So then came pole dancing? Yeah. Um, my friend at the time, um, who I met through my ex-boyfriend, they were family. Um, she had she had lost a ton of weight going to these pole dancing classes. So she'd lost like eight stone doing these pole dancing lessons and it sounded amazing. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden she was going to this um, strip club and it was only a topless club at the time when they still existed. And um, she told me about the money that she was making. And I was like, yes, let's go sign me up. So I went to a pole dancing class, which is fitness orientated. Went to two pole dancing classes. And um, I think it was the perhaps the weekend of the second pole dancing class. I went to the strip club with her for the first time. Yeah. And this took you to Spain. It did eventually, yeah. I hung out at this uh, um, in the south coast of England for a little while, stripping and. Was there any dramas during that period? Just a lot of drink and drugs, yeah. Like we were drinking enormous amounts and like dabbing ecstasy and sniffing coke. Um, Yeah, so there was there was dramas, um, but um, sometimes they're not as prominent because of the major things that have happened. Mm. How different was Spain? Spain was very different. So um, um, I moved to Spain at about 22, 23 years old. And um, I was introduced to this guy who was a dance agent, so who who supplied strippers to strip clubs. Um, and he was also an escort himself. So, and he'd been in the industry for years and years and years. Um, and so I arrived at this, I had a girlfriend at the time. I was seeing a girl at the time. And so I, and she was going to come over with me. And so she did. And then she left and this guy had dancers staying at his house. 
So like I walked in the house and there's just like three strippers just laying out, laying out the place, smoking ganja, like do- a couple of dogs. It was like heaven. I was like, oh my <laughs> gosh, thank you. Um, me and the girlfriend split up because she wanted to go and travel. And then I ended up um, getting with this guy. Yeah, the owner of the house. Yeah. And uh, dancing in a, in a strip club in um, Port of Anous. And in these strip clubs then, is it like you can't touch the girls? Is it that kind of thing? No, quite the opposite. So you've got sections in strip clubs in Spain. And the first section is this is a dance and you're not allowed to touch. And then there's a sex- section where this is a dance and you're allowed to touch my boobs. And then there's a section where if you tip the manager and the bar staff and the DJ, do what the fuck you like. that goes down in england clubs as well like it depends where you are like every single club all over the world they're all different because it's dependent on which who's tipping who and what cameras are are directed at which room and which corner (laughs) and we know every every single corner inch by inch trust me so yeah there was a lot more going on in or there was perhaps there was the same amount going on in Spain, but this was the first time that I had seen like, ooh, this industry's naughty. Yeah, my eyes were opened. And how did you feel about that? Well, a bit gross sometimes because I was touched up so much. So it was, yeah, it was, it, that, it's so annoying, you know, when you are young, uh, like you're a baby stripper and you don't want to be touched. You just want to do your lap dance and then get your money. Um, but they, it was just, it's the norm, you know, it's absolutely the norm for them to grope your boobs and for them to touch you, um, and try and touch other places. And so, and so it began. Yeah. And so it began where, where you, you, you start to, um, like change shape and adjust with the journey. Yeah. Did punters get pulverized for doing that by the bouncers? Oh, what's that mean? up oh yeah i've seen a couple a couple but not in spain not that no <laughs> no no was it in england before that you saw that yeah i saw a couple of I, I i think a couple of guys got taken out the back and beaten up a couple of times yeah one for touching my knee once yeah that was it so it was really really odd the extremities of how different the rules were in 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 different clubs yeah so your boyfriend at the time was doing workshops in how to squirt. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how long does a workshop in how to squirt last? I what? don't know. I never went to one. <laughs> it's making me he didn't, he didn't ask you to... <laughs> no, because he just performed his, his skills on me. Um, <laughs> so I didn't need to go to the workshop. I didn't need to learn that stuff. Um <laughs> He did lots of different stuff. He, yeah, he, he did lots of different I stuff. I think we're, we're curious about this uh, workshop. I know, I know. I could, I could all tell. the men, what, I mean, it's predominantly men on this channel now, and they're all wondering what, what it takes. What Can you give them some advice? I can tell you exactly how to do it. Go on then. I can't, I'm sweating. I'm, too hot. I'm trying, lads. I'm trying, lads. <laughs> oh my god! If um, oh. if they come on my socials and pay me, I'll tell them. <laughs> but but there was a dark side to this character. Oh yeah, because he was um, he was drugging you up. 
So we, I did, um, I was given GBH every night, the, the liquid date rape, rape drug. Um, he did that with all his girlfriends, actually. Um, yeah, it was a thing. Um, and it was a, um, it was a consensual thing, you know, it wasn't like behind my back or behind their backs. Um, but we got wild. Um, and I say we, like, we, along with the other, the, the other girls that had gone with, got, and got with him. Um, so that's when I think my sexual experiences, like, exploded, like, with regards to what I had done in a bedroom. Um, and not all of it was good. Not all of it was nice. Um, but there's definitely an internalized issue that I have had and, or I've had and many, many other, um, people have had. I know that when we're in situations, sometimes we do what we think we should do, especially in, in situations, um, in sexual situations and when the other person is extremely dominant and, and, um, scary as fuck <laughs> so, so with gamma hydroxybutamate if you take a little bit too much you go unconscious or if you right. have alcohol with it there's a reaction right. are you saying that this guy was going bill cosby on women um when we wake up in the morning we get out of bed and we start our day with coro snacks Coro is a healthy snacks brand focusing on bringing additive-free natural ingredients to their customers with fair prices in bulk packaging. They have everything from nut butters to free from baking ingredients to cooking essentials and, of course, the snacks. <laughs> it doesn't get healthier than this because all those other snacks have refined sugars, colours, preservatives and additives. Coro's Snacks have none of that. I oh, can't wait. So I'm going to go for the bio energy ball today. Ooh, neat. Salted pistachio. I've got a little uh, chocolate bar here, I think. Oh, the coconut chocolate bar. Mmm. Oh, that's mm. good. Want to try it? Ooh. <laughs> so what makes Coro special in comparison to others? Coro avoids using sulfur, refined sugars, preservatives, colours and other additives. For a 5% discount on Coro's products, use the code TRUECRIME with no space in between true and crime. The link to Coro's online shop is in the description box on YouTube. Thanks for supporting our sponsor. No, because I don't know that. But I just know my own experience behind that bedroom door. Was he doing that kind of thing to you? Um, I remember one or two times I was not absolutely not with it yeah um yeah and I remember one time taking too much and nothing happened him just leaving me in the bed but I was full on like yeah I was full on out but uh, the other two times it's just that right at the edge right at the limit of where I, I'm still uh, a person that can like make a noise and move but not really because I'm fucking tied up and I don't really have uh, the, the capacity to say to you actually this is not and there's one occasion where I said no several times and he continued and that's quite scary to say out loud and to voice 
especially knowing that people are going to see this. Like, um, but that happened. Do you think he was taking advantage of your adventurous spirit? uh, I didn't have an adventurous spirit. He was taking advantage, full stop. I was... I was frigid at school and stuff. I didn't have sex till I was 16 years old. Like, I didn't even kiss someone till I was 14 years old. Like, it was the biggest thing in my fucking life, snogging someone at 14. I was, um, yeah, I was, yeah, I was scared and not into it then. Yeah. So how, I mean, like, you, you know, you hear about people in uh, relationships, S&M relationships, where they have, like, safe words and things like that. We've interviewed a few dominatrixes. Was there, was there no uh, preliminary discussion with him about limits? Of, no. No. Which was his responsibility, really, because he was 20 years older than you. Right. I was 23 and he was 43. Mm-hmm. Um, and, he, but he, he was very clever, like very, very clever. So like had a lot of friends, a lot, and was very popular and very liked but was also fucking dangerous as well. Excuse my language. In what way? Well, like one day we pulled up in a car. He drove his car and I was in it to some, to some house, wrapped a leather belt around his feet, around his hands, went out. I heard a couple of things and then he come back into the car and his hand was covered in blood and stuff. Like, you know, he did a bit of um, selling in that of stuff so I think he probably got into some some dark bits and pieces with that but he was very intimidating like and I'm a strong person but he was very intimidating um yeah so what did he look like so he is um an Indian American. So he was tall. Like a Native American. Yeah, yeah. like tall, dark, with long black mm-hmm. hair. Um, and had done modeling and adverts and things in the past um, because of his look and his um, his skills with horses as well. Like he could like, had like a big fucking six meter long whip and could like yeah all of that stuff but like could whip it and stuff like when we went to a swingers convention to work out once like he had all of the stuff yeah he was a uh he was a cowboy he was a cowboy and did you say how you met him when i moved to spain he was the owner of the house he was my agent he was your agent yeah he supplied strippers to the strip clubs and you said you went to a swingers convention and there was you were operating as a dominatrix. What what did they involve? No, I was a performer there. So me and my friends had a, a bit of a, a dance trait because we were strippers. Anyway, we were, we had dance experience, and so there was a different. It was five nights of the, basically five hundred couples hire out this hotel for the whole week. Um, so they get roam of the whole hotel. They can do whatever they like, um, naked or not, and we were there as performers, but we were very much like in amongst it all. So I saw absolutely everything. I got asked by the, um, I think the founder of this particular convention to go in one of the rooms. Like, yeah, they were really trying to get us to go in. Obviously I was with this guy, but he was also there working. So it was very bizarre, like being there with your boyfriend and the boyfriend is trying to pick up women or men at the bar as clients. Yeah, weird. Going out of well, let me get this straight then. You said, 
a hotel was rented out by 500 couples. I've never heard anything like this before in my life. And they can walk around naked. <laughs> so are all these people, are they swinger couples, all of them? Yeah. So, so it's we just, were sitting by everyone's the Everyone's just... Going everywhere. They're all naked. They're all fucking each other. They're all doing whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want. We're sitting by the pool, just dangling our legs in, and there's some girl getting finger blasted by this guy. And there's about fifteen men and women just stood right around her. And as soon as she comes, they're like, "Way!" Like literally just next to her, like all just out by the pool side. Um, we're performing at night, and there'll be just guys literally just there, both getting blowjobs, or one girl sitting on the big mechanical cock. Um, yeah, everything, like one girl tied up to this big black, um, X cage thing. Um, all of it, every, like, like all the kinks all went down. And then the rooms, there was like a few different rooms that they had, um, organized to be specifically for just sex rooms basically like gangbangs and so they had like just mattresses like fancy mattresses and cushions all over them so you could just go in there and just yeah gangbang you guys mm-hmm. heard of a, this kind of a thing at, at this scale have you ever filmed anything like this james it's a bit, uh, a bit more than the na- nature's cleaners <laughs> oh yeah they were going in yeah so you said you had to do a performance what was yeah. your performance so we would perform we would dance each night, so it was a choreographed routine that I would make up, and we had I did all the costumes, all the set design, um, <coughs> music, everything, and we would perform, and then afterwards we would podium dance just to keep up the energy in the room. And so there was different themes each night, um, and so we would have um, we were body painted, or we had like a slightly fetish outfit on. We as a dance troupe, I had to choreograph routines and did all the set design and all the costumes and music and everything. What kind of costumes? Um, So there was a different theme each night. There was white night, um, fetish night, um, Hawaiian, cowboy and cowgirl um, with a big mechanical bull. I won. (laughs) I stayed on it the longest. It was great. Um, And so we would, yeah, um, slut up the outfits and um, put them together perform our routine, and then we would podium dance afterwards to keep the energy up in the room. What was your favourite theme? Uh, white, I think, because we got body painted. We were, we were topless, and it was really cool. We, we had body paint, all whites and sparkles. Yeah, it was really wow. It was fun. It was really, really amazing. Like, just such an amazing experience, yeah. How did your relationship with this man end? Um, I left without telling him that I was going for good. My friend and I, um, um, we were going to a festival in the UK. So we were flying back for that. Um, so I took my favorite, cause all my stuff was out there, everything that I, that I had. Um, so I took all the bits that I wanted to keep and by this time, I'd become a bit of a hippie. So I went out there and I was into the shoes and the, and the clothes, all, you know, high fashion stuff and expensive clothes and shoes. Had stuff, mounds and mounds of accessories and blah, blah, blah. And then by the time I left there, <laughs> I was just a bit of a ganja smoking hippie. Like I just, <laughs> you didn't really, yeah, I didn't really care yeah. for nice things. So I got my favorite things and put them in a suitcase. And he said, I know you're not coming back. And I just had to keep up the act and just say, yeah, of course I am, of course I am. 
um, the day before he'd thrown me up against the bedroom um, uh, wardrobe and the night before he'd 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 hit me out of bed and it was weird because it wasn't a punch or anything like that but it was such a strong force of a hit that I flew out the bed and I would you know my mum had always always said you know like don't go there if a guy hits you like we move so as soon as I'd seen that I thought if you're capable of that I don't know what else you're capable of you've manipulated everyone else to think you're some charming guy because you help people because he did um help people and put people you know put the girls up and things like that so he was seen as this great guy um but I had it, you know, I saw him behind closed doors and when people weren't looking and it wasn't pleasant. Yeah. What kind of a relief was it when you got back to the UK then and away from him? Um, it was nice. It was fun. Went to Newquay and did a season in a strip club in Newquay for three months. Was, my- that, was that tame relative to Spain? Yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was great. It was lovely. Yeah. We just smoked loads of weed, went to the beach in the days and, and, and drank coffee. Then we'd go to this strip club at night. This strip club was the cleanest strip club I've ever worked in in my life. There was a piece of masking tape. <laughs> so you would sit there and there'd be a, a bit of masking tape about half a foot in front of you. And I wasn't allowed to cross that masking tape. So it's very awkward slap dance if you're not allowed to even hold the guy's shoulders or something like yeah. that. Do you know what I mean? We weren't even allowed to lean over them or no grinding of the lap or anything in this place but they loved it it was brilliant they absolutely loved it um you know their clientele they was you know very young and they'd be on stag do's and birthday parties and it was nuki so it was fun yeah we were in nuki it's, yeah i did my first fun. line of cat though once in, in nuki <laughs> that was fun <laughs> so you moved back to surrey um i met a guy actually in nuki he was on a he was um, with a group of his friends who um, were uh, doing a birthday party. He wasn't a strip club goer. He was just being a sport, you know, and I gave him a lap dance and was like, you, I want to take you home. So I <laughs> took him home that night and we were together for two and a half years. Oh, shit. Yeah. Was that a healthy relationship? It was a very healthy relationship to begin with. Yeah, it was lovely. Very funny and romantic. It was lovely. It was a nice experience. If it wasn't for him, I would probably just have lost all hope. But because I've had experience of a nice guy, um, albeit a bit boring. Um, <laughs> yeah. And what was your career during that, the sorry years? I was um, a membership sales consultant at health clubs. That was the only job that, I'm, that I seemed to like. I wonder whether it's because of the social aspect that went with it, because um, it's a young industry. But I was also, um, to begin with, I was still stripping at weekends um I and I was going down to Bournemouth and coming back up to Surrey and then I moved to Surrey um gave up the dancing um and then set up um my pole dancing business yeah I had a pole and so I found a studio to rent and um and set that up and then when we broke up I um, I stayed up there, I stayed up in Surrey because the pole dancing business was going well. I'd made some friends and so I thought, what's the point in going back to Bournemouth? Um, and then I, th- and then I started stripping again. Yeah. Once he'd gone. And then there was the tragedy of your mum getting diagnosed. 
Yeah. So I was 27. I was about to go to work. I was working in, I've missed a chunk. <laughs> I, worked, I worked in a club in did, did Hammersmith. You want, did you want to go back? And fill, no, fill it's just in? a section. I can insert it. I okay. worked in a club in Hammersmith on and off for a few years between Spain and Newquay. Mm-hmm. That's what was my main club for a while, but it didn't come into being my home club um, again until after this. So in between Spain and Newquay, um, I was in London and we would stay above the strip club. Uh, there's so many stories about that strip club. Yeah, so unbelievable. Let's have them. And that was definitely um, everything and anything, <laughs> to be honest with you. What do you want to happen? <laughs> so I've seen men drop, um, I've seen men drop 40 grand in a night in a club in before, have his cock suck next to me. Are these like um, oil them. tycoons or something? There's business people. Yeah, because it was easy to come from um, from town and just stop at Hammersmith because that's the branch that I was at. And then they'd go home to their lovely wives and children after they'd um, yeah, got absolutely mashed up in the corner of the VIP and they had all their bank accounts emptied. Um, the waiters used to like add a naught and things like that when they were putting the money through like yeah it was it was a real um operation between the girls and the waiters and the management especially the management were really bad for it they would get into they were getting tips big tips and uh, <laughs> i'm just thinking they're gonna fucking hate me they see this and i can't wait <laughs> is it still going is it still is it... um yeah, they're all still open. It's still open. It's different management, I think. But so if they're adding zeros on, aren't they burning through the customers, though? Things like that. It was weird, yeah. But I guess it depended. Like, that was, like, just a one thing that they did. you know what I mean? Mm. Maybe if that was just, like, a, a a £60 thing, they'll put 600 through or something like that instead. But when it comes to the big money, like, you just load them, like, just keep loading them on, just keep tapping. Yeah. Um <coughs> And anything went in that club. Yeah, I saw it all. Um, and when I, my first section in that club, I wasn't, I wasn't really doing coke and drinking. I was smoking a lot of weed. So, so I wasn't, it wasn't really that dark for me. Like me and my friend used to go off and smoke a joint, do our dances, and then we'd go and have the munchies at the end of the night. It wasn't until my second section in that club. When my mum was diagnosed, that it got, it got, yeah, toxic, yeah. How bad so, did it get? <clears throat> so I was on my way, I was literally crossing the road about to get in my car to drive to the club and got a call to say mum had had a seizure in TK Maxx and then got another phone call a couple hours later saying she's got a brain tumour and so as soon as I heard the word brain tumour it was straight down to Bournemouth and... um my sister at the time, my eldest sister lived in Australia at the time, had done, had lived in New Zealand for six years, had just moved to Australia. My other sister was also abroad and I got to the hospital and mum said, brace yourself, Charlotte, this is going to kill me. Well, she said Charlotte because that's what she called me. Brace yourself, Charlotte, because this is going to kill me. And that was it. It did eventually. She got, um, she got given a three, she got given three weeks to live, um, 
at one point. She survived 15 months, though. She, yeah, strong, strong, powerful woman. She wasn't going to be told when she was going to die. No, no. Um, she planned everything from from start to finish, including her funeral. She went um, in her funeral. She had a. She always wanted a, an electric blue. SLK Mercedes so she had a coffin that was an electric blue SLK Mercedes with a registration plate saying going out in style on it um so yeah when she had that diagnosis that she was terminally ill all I heard was my mum's gonna die what the hell are you gonna do like this is gonna ruin your life she was a good mum you know I didn't have a I know that not every mum is good and I know that people don't have good relationships with their mum we were lucky we did and so um, she, and so it was almost immediate. Uh, as soon as I left the hospital, I think it was the first weekend I finally left the hospital and went and saw my friend and, she, and I hadn't smoked weed for a year. I wasn't really drinking or sniffing too much. She passed me a joint and that was it. And then I think within a month I was drinking heavily. Um, and then, um, uh, I think, yeah, then she, um, <laughs> yeah, she bought me some poles to set up a pole studio. She really wanted to set us up camp before she left. So she did that. She made sure my sisters was okay. Um, and she put a deposit down on a house for me to rent and she bought me the, the poles for my new studio. Um, and so I moved into this lovely one bedroom house. I paid one month's rent and then I didn't pay rent again for another year. And I got, um, kicked out of there. I got, um, what's the word? Uh, evicted. Evicted out of there a year later. During that year, I would go to Hammersmith Secret six nights a week and get absolutely off my tits. And the only thing I went there for was drugs. I wasn't there to go and make money. I never made money. I spent 140 quid before I'd even opened my eyes at 6pm because that was my morning. Um, you know, it took me a litre of vodka, a bottle of wine, a couple of grams of coke and a bag of weed to even function. And I was functioning as well as a functioning substance user. Like there are many, many other addicts out there that are functioning, are highly functioning individuals. So, you know, driving at the wheel and doing a line and rolling the joint and drinking and all of the rest of it was just the, the absolute norm. So miraculous that I'm alive, let alone not somewhere else. <laughs> so you were self-medicating then? <clears throat> yeah, and I wasn't eating solids five days a week. So I was extremely thin, so, so thin, so ill, so malnourished. The doctors had me on 40 sips, which are the, a little bottle of 100 calories, and they're full of nutrients, and they're for cancer patients. Um, and my GP used to knock at my door on her way to work just to make sure I was alive because she wasn't sure whether I'd put my clogs yet. Um, and people would try and help, but in very odd ways. Um, yeah, I had there was one of the bouncers at work, bless him, he used to bring me a protein shake, and he used to sit me down mm. at the bar and he would not let me move until I'd had this protein shake, bless him, bless his heart. And then I'd go off with my vodka. What were your colleagues like? Um, all for themselves. It was, yeah, it was really dog eat dog. There was no loyalty then at Secrets. There was this absolute persona that they were the best of friends, you know. 
But it seemed to be that they were friends through partying and through money and through having things rather than a a deep heartfelt connection that is the truth of a friendship. So there was this always this false hope that you had friends as well. And that was really nice when you're going through something as lonely as losing your mum. So I was like, yeah, these are my friends. And then the dealers were my friends and they would come back to my house and come and party with me because they had free coke. And then I ended up getting into a relationship with one of them. Did famous people go to secrets? Yeah, I think, yeah. Are you able to name drop any? Um... I've danced for a couple of them, but I can't really remember who. Like footballers and stuff? Yeah, I've danced for a few footballers in my time. I can't remember names. Um, A couple of famous ones. And um, a lot of the Bournemouth players as well, who were my friends at the time from being and growing up in Bournemouth, have gone on to be famous football players. So that was always quite exciting when they used to come in the club. Were they well behaved or were they prima donnas? Nah, they were disgusting. <laughs> Wait, Footballers what? are assholes. What, what? Can you give an example they're of They're just behavior? naughty. They're just so naughty and it's almost like there's one rule for them <coughs> and another for everybody else. Yeah, they can, they, they can get away with blue murder and it's not a problem at all. Cheat on their girlfriends. I've slept with footballers that have, yeah, been with, been with women. So they they think yeah. they can just throw the money around? Yeah, money or, or not, you know, or get get things and not have money, you know. Some guys and um especially someone like footballer will just like the persona of it. They'll like the fact that you know that they've got money and they like not paying you because they because you're trying and they just enjoy that control and that um yeah, that power trip. Yeah. What was the worst thing you saw? What do you mean worse? In which way? In what way? <laughs> like most insane, graphic or dangerous, that kind of stuff. One girl killed someone on the way home. What? Yeah, and she got away with it because... Hold on, the ma- slow down, slow down. Set, set the scene for this one. I don't know the scene because I wasn't there, but one girl killed someone on the way home. She was drink driving and she killed someone. And she got away with it because the manager was friends with top cops. Right. So were the cops visitors? Um, yeah, they would visit sometimes. Yeah, girls had their face sliced up with glass. Like girls were glassed in. Gla- nah, girls and girls. Girls on girls yeah. slashed each other's faces yeah. up. Yeah, one girl had was glassed one night. Was that a competition thing? There was mad competition. Yeah, there was a lot of money though, like a lot of money, you know, and a so lot if of girls drugs. get slashed in the face. Is her career ruined then? Well, I don't, I don't know. Probably not after, after a little while. Yeah, um, lots of different stuff happens. Girls were quite intimidating then, but like the the first girl that was so intimidating to me, she scared the shit out of me, and she was talking to what was my customer at the time, and I was like, "Oh, you're talking to my customer." Like, I was really nice about it, really shy. <laughs> And she's like, and? That was what she was said. <laughs> I was so scared of her. And now we're really good friends. But we're not we're not friends in, in contact, but a lot of love for each other. And she was vile at times. How did you make friends with her? Because they would pick and choose when they would want to be friends with you, the top girls. Yeah. Until I was a top girl myself, it was wait until you're chosen. And one day we'll like you, and the other days you'll we won't like you but they also knew that I was the girl with the gear so I was yeah I was their best friend a lot of the time 
towards the end because I always had gear and they knew it and they would always come into work and and I've seen this a lot with with other friends as well and that was like oh, I'm not going to do any gear tonight like just I'm just going to have a drink or two blah 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 and they know it's because they don't want the guilt of buying it themselves whereas I don't want to have to try and find it so I will <laughs> I used to stack my, stash up my little bag like yeah I was prepared so in a in a good night how much could a top girl make Grands and grands and grands and grands and grands. Yeah. But was it just blitzed on coke and drug, alcohol and party? Nah, these girls had houses and cars and businesses. (laughs) Yeah. That's good. Yeah, and gear. They could afford it all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, trust me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They could afford the parties, saying yes to everything, the clothes, the shoes. Yeah, they still can. Now, I've got some dear friends that are strippers, like a couple, one friend, especially, she's a very close friend of mine, and we, you know, and she, she, she can afford it all. Yeah. Um, she was never, a, she was never a gearhead or anything, so that was nice. <laughs> but also, there's such, um, like when I was, I, I, I the last club that I worked in was in um, Bournemouth. I went back to Bournemouth and worked there. I would still drive there each weekend, which was absolutely insane. But the community of girls that we had there was lovely. And I'm still very good friends with a couple of them because of that. You know, they they we'd seen each other at our worst and best. I'd had years there where I was absolutely off my head on drink and coke. Then I'd had years there where I was just drunk and then I'd had years there sober and there was just never any judgment. It was always just like, it's cool. She's doing this now, is she? Okay, cool. So that was nice. That was a nice experience after the um, the cutthroat of Hammersmith. So how did bad did your self-destruction get after your mum's death? <laughs> it was bad. Um, I couldn't afford anything, absolutely anything. But I managed to find myself coke and alcohol and weed every single day without fail. Um, I owed drug dealers money numerous times. And um, I was also addicted to Valiums. So I was taking up and downers. I was taking Tamazepam like they were Smarties or Diazepam or Xanax, anything like that. Um, so it was bad because I was very, very ill. Um, it was bad because I wasn't supporting my sisters being carers for my mum. I just couldn't even see her. I just wouldn't even, I'd go down, I'd drive down with the intention of spending time there or helping out perhaps. And within an hour, I'd be in the car getting back on the road to Surrey, calling a dealer and saying I'm on my way. Um, because I just couldn't even bear the visual aspect of, of it all. Um, and then, um, I, it got so bad and I was paying no bills whatsoever. So I was having bailiffs knocking at my door at Stupid Crock in the Morning. I remember having <coughs> this lovely house and I used to have towels over the curtains because I was so frightened of any light, any peep of light whatsoever coming in that house. It was an absolute, yeah, it was a den. And I was having bailiffs knocking at my door and then the landlord knocked at my door one day. And said, you know, it's, there's there's people that have troubles and there's people that have hard times. He was like, but when it gets too far, I'm out for blood. Hope you're enjoying this podcast. There's a word from our sponsor, Rocket Money. 
The other day, I had to cancel free Amazon Prime memberships. I had a personal on the UK, Amazon, US, Amazon, company account, US, Amazon, UK, Amazon. Do you understand how hard it is to cancel these bloody things? That's why Rocket Money makes these things so much easier, formerly known as Truebill. The app shows all your subscriptions in one place and cancels what you don't want for you. Rocket Money can even find subscriptions you didn't know you were paying for. Just like with me, with my four Amazon Prime memberships, you may find out you've been at least double charged for a subscription. To cancel a subscription, all you've got to do is press cancel and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Get rid of useless subscriptions with Rocket Money now. Go to rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Seriously, it could save you hundreds per year. That's rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Thank you for supporting our sponsor, Rocket Money. Links in the description box. Cheers. Um, and that's when the whole eviction took place. And um, at that time, I was, um, yeah, I was going out with my drug dealer boyfriend. So, so as long as I had drugs, everything was all right. I didn't really, yeah, it was bad, but I didn't really realise how bad it was. Did you end up squatting in London? <coughs> yeah. How does that work, squatting? Well, it wasn't like a dialect building or anything. It was actually he had contacts in the estate agency business and he got wind of a an apartment that he thought was supposed to be empty and told me that I was allowed to stay there, of course, to make me feel better. Um, and so I, I did. Uh, all my stuff fitted in my car um, and then I had my car at loads of other different people's places over the time. Um, but... One day I woke up to a an estate agent walking a couple around the apartment. What's an NSA agent? An estate agent. Oh, an estate agent? Yeah, they walked in the lounge where I was lying on the carpet, half asleep, half not sleeping. And yeah, it was that. <laughs> Your face there. What was the conversation? Off. It was horrible. It was more. Can you describe it? I was so... I was so embarrassed. Like, this is the first time that anything has happened like this to me before. So, first of all, I was mortified. And um, just before my mum got diagnosed, the week before my mum diagnosed, I got a dog, I I bought a puppy, and she she was with me at the time as well. And the estate agent showed this couple around quite quickly. And then my dog was going mad, and he was like... I'm going to kick your dog in, in a minute if your dog did Because I was trying to get all my, gather all my things and get out there as quickly as possible. I had things in the garage. I, I don't know where my head was at. I was thinking that I was living there or something. I was definitely not. Um, and I remember putting my nose up to his nose and saying to him, please kick my dog. Please kick my dog because I need a reason to kill someone right now. I was at the absolute end of my temper. I just said to him, please do it by all means. <laughs> Obviously he didn't and I'm glad that he didn't, but it was that. And I was so upset with my boyfriend um, and he had a nice BMW and he pulled up and he stood on the side of the road and I got in my car and I looked at him and I smashed into his car over and over and over again just kept driving into his car looking at his face and then I lined my car up next to his car and took the side of his BMW off with my shitty old car that I had at the time and was like thanks for that see you later (laughs) was this one of your arrests no he wouldn't have dared no way he was a drug dealer and he was involved in some really 
naughty stuff he wouldn't have dared and he knew what he had done was awful tell me it was okay to stay somewhere and then yeah be busted in that you know it wasn't the worst scenario in the world don't get me wrong I was you know a privileged homeless person but um yeah it was pretty shitty and then um I would stay um, at, at um, other people's houses, um, like friends and stuff, and just outstay my welcome over and over again. And then my friend's boyfriend's dad was dying and was in a hospice or a hospital, and he had a bed sit. And so I went and I squatted there for a bit whilst, and no one knew. I wasn't allowed to be there. He didn't know. And I... I so desperately wanted a place to call home that every time I used to go somewhere, I used to get off my nut and clean the whole place and try and make it my own, even though I knew that I wasn't going to be there. So I ended up like, not, yeah, I ended up bagging loads of his stuff up and things like that, like almost acting like I was actually going to live there. It was really bizarre mentality, but I guess it was just uh, something that I fixated on the time because I was desperate for something to fixate on, I suppose. But yeah, so got kicked out of there eventually. You're clinging to the hope of stability, but it's not happening. There was no chance of it happening because I had no money. Um, and um, I think mum had passed by now. And so um, I was waiting for her inheritance and it took absolutely ages. But that was the only chance that I was going to have to put a a month's rent down on somewhere because places take a month's rent and a deposit so yeah it was it was a tricky time so were you living in a hotel when you met the guy who had the caravan yeah so I'd managed to borrow money daily off people um for drugs and for my hotel stay hotel stay so I was living in the travel lodge for three weeks um, drinking the bar dry every night, doing loads of coke every single night. Um, they thought I was a prostitute because of the fact that I was there on my own and I would talk to random guys that were on their own because I wanted company. Like, obviously, I was doing loads of gear. Like, I wanted to talk. <laughs> so... Um, so did they try and get rid of you? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, they were. They didn't like me. They didn't like me there. And so when I left, I think I was at the end of my stay anyway. I think I don't think I would have been able to stay there much longer, to be honest. Um, and then I met this guy in the in the park, and he had a load of dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a doggy daycare, and he was you know we chatted and exchanged numbers. And then one night, I just. I knew I'd run out of money. I knew that I had nothing else. So I messaged him and said, can you come and pick me up? And he came and picked me up. And I was at his for the next five months. Yeah. Left a few bits at the travel lodge. Don't know what I left there. Laptop, speaker, loads of bits and pieces. Never saw that again. Um, But around this time, you start getting arrested for criminal um, assault. He had me arrested for criminal assault, criminal and criminal damage and possession. And the only reason why I had got criminal, got possession and criminal damage was because the cops came in the caravan and saw the, and saw the um, mess that I'd made. What had actually happened? What had led up to that? We'd had to... We'd had a massive row. We were doing gear all the time together. Like, it was just come down after come down. 
I didn't even really want to be with this guy. I was just there because it was so convenient. Like, I had a roof over my head. I'd just lost my mum, like, a few months prior to that. So I was I was absolutely wild, off my head. I was loud. I was angry. Um, I would do anything for a party. Every single night, I would, you know, beg people to come around and we would party. But in the mornings, I would flip my shit and I would just go nuts and shout and scream at him and um, smash things up a lot. And that was a... (coughs) That was a behaviour and a pattern that was in my life for a while. Um, For a long while, actually. It was only... It's only up until, you know, very recent years, i.e. the last couple of years, that I've managed to heal some of that um behavior and change that that pattern but it's very understandable wanting to break something and hurt something and yeah it's it's, yeah it was it's understandable now because I've done the work to you know figure it all out so yeah it was one morning smashed up the um smashed up the kitchen a bit and we had a scrap of some sort. Like, I, I don't know what happened, like, whether I pushed him. It was a bit of a push and a shove. And he left, and his next, the next-door neighbour said to him, if you don't call the police, I will. And so he did. He ran the police, and the police turned up. And before they arrested me for criminal assault, they said, we can smell weed. And they arrested me as they walked in the caravan and saw there was a quarter of a joint in the ashtray. There was nothing else. And so they arrested me for a quarter of a joint possession. And then they continued the arrest to arrest me for criminal assault and criminal damage. Did you go to jail? No, just for the night. What jail was it? Staines. What was it like? I spent the the night going absolutely nuts because I wanted to know where my dog was. I wanted to know my dog was safe. When you say nuts, you were screaming? Yeah, I was just getting the pillow and smashing the walls, screaming. I've got such a loud voice when I want to. So I was roaring, absolutely roaring, for hours and hours and hours. Tell me where my fucking dog is now. I bet you did it louder than that, though. Oh, yeah. Can you demonstrate uh, the full roar? <laughs> no, because you lot will be busting out of this room, I'm James telling you. James put that in the trailer. He would love that. Come on. No! Come on. Roar! It's louder than that. <laughs> Is it? And I was tapping the bell. Louder than that? Ta- tapping the buzzer. I was... James, it's Charles adjusting the audio. <laughs> the pit of my stomach. His headset's going to explode. <laughs> I was screaming. Like what? Come on, give us one. <laughs> God, I'm gonna pull with sweat. This is too much. And I'm gonna I'm gonna be shy. We need this for the trailer. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. <laughs> I was I was very angry and I just kept and I kept, kept smashing the pillow. <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> I was going, Tell me where my fucking dog is now <laughs> But much 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 with much more volume. It was really loud. I think we could use that. It's very loud. So, that's the Kerry Katana <laughs> level. <laughs> it was very loud. And eventually this lady came in and, you know, I was having a bit of a panic attack and blah, blah, blah. It was nothing. Like, I didn't do time. I did a night in a cell. But at the time, there was so much trauma going on. 
that it was a lot. And I knew as well at that mo- moment I was homeless again. Mm. So it wasn't just the fact that I'd been arrested. I, I was homeless and I didn't have any anywhere to go again that mm. night. And so I ended up having to call upon my ex-boyfriend who I moved up to Surrey for and he was very um sensible and so looked down on this type of <laughs> behavior and it wasn't very pleasant or welcoming st- sleeping on his couch and him being very disappointed in me um it was horrible um and that went on for a little bit and then I would and then I I rented a couple of like I rented one room out for a month and she kicked me out because bailiffs were at her door for me and then I kicked and then I rented another room out with this guy who was on steroids and he had me up against the wall, <coughs> even though it was half half my height. It was, it was, all his muscles were popping at me. He was absolutely off his nut on steroids. And so I had to move out from there too. Um, and then eventually I found a <coughs> studio flat and this guy let me move in without putting a deposit down. I said to him, my mum's passed away and my inheritance is coming through. Will you just let me move in with one week's rent? And he did, which was really Sweet. kind of him. It was very compassionate of him. Um, but that ended up having, it was infested with flies, like absolutely nice. infested. Like it was just awful. It was horrific. And then there was a sewage problem. So the toilet started overflowing one day and he wouldn't come. And then there was rats. So I just had to leave for my own like health, really. Mm. Um, and so I um, found a caravan. I found a caravan on a caravan site. And I went to live there for a couple of years. Um, and I went out with this guy who was, uh, he was an old friend of mine from school. We were friends when I was 18 years old. Very, very good friends. And so when he came along, I assumed that he was this perfect guy and it was this magical synchronicity that had happened and he'd come back into my life. And he ended up um, being abusive with me financially, mentally and sexually. Um, He was a nightmare. Um, So that was another... um, That was another horrible experience with a man with someone that I'm supposed to trust and also just another another load to add to the pain that was already inside so I was just so it wasn't helping with my with my responses with my reactions with smashing up the kitchen and things like that because that was a regular pattern yeah um and and um by this time I wasn't drinking or 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 doing coke I'd stopped that because I'd just done it to the point where it was just my body was rejecting it. I was, yeah. You still got your pole dancing studio at this age thirty. I'd had it. I, I had it by the skin of my teeth. Yeah, I did. I'd moved to a couple of different studios, um, but I still had um, the poles and a small client base that I was, yeah, holding on for dear life with. And have you managed to hold on to dear life to your dog? For all this as well? My dog is my, yeah, my dog is, yeah, she is still with me. She's my number one. She's the reason why I'm still alive. There was a couple of times where I really, really wanted to end my life. I was absolutely ready to go. Um, and I couldn't because I just couldn't leave her. When were those times? Um, this was the, the year that my mum was dying. So it was the le- it was the year leading up to her passing away. Um, I remember being in the back of the ambulance one, one night because I'd, taken so much gear I didn't even know what was in it and there was some 
crap in it. I think there was some speed in it or something like that. There was a lot of um, Albanian dealers at the time in Hammersmith and they were cutting up their stuff with, I don't know what. It was not nice. And I'd taken a lot of, um, I think I'd taken 100 milligrams of tomazepam at night and then various other things. Was the intention to kill yourself? No, the intention was not. But once, as soon as that, you're coming to the end of your session. And I was doing a lot, like just copious amounts of stuff. And I was doing loads of balloons and stuff, like three and you know, I was going through 300 balloons a day. <coughs> like you couldn't come round my house and have a cup of tea with me without me sitting there with a balloon in my mouth, a line of gear on the sides and a joint in the ashtray. And before that joint was finished, another one was being rolled, like an alcohol as well by the side. It, I didn't, it didn't matter who you were or what the situation was. I didn't care. This was what I was doing. Um, and so... <coughs> So that time I begged the paramedics to kill me. I was begging them, please kill me, please kill me, please kill me. And my friend at the time was sat in the back of the ambulance and I was like, please look after, look after Dommy, look after her. And then I decided that I was just at the hospital. I just couldn't do it because I couldn't leave her. I couldn't leave her at all. She was my be all and end all and is now. She's the absolute, <laughs> yeah primary person <laughs> in my life <laughs> she's a little madam but um yeah on a couple of occasions I absolutely wanted to end it and um and would have if it hadn't have been for her needing me to be alive why did you turn vegan at age 30 <laughs> um animal cruelty that I saw online I saw vigils online and I also knew I always loved growing up I always loved animals, sorry, growing up. Um, and I always used to ask mum, like, what, you know, where's this, where's this meat coming from? Mum, she's like, they've all died naturally, like, you know, and all of this stuff. And I just knew it, <laughs> that was a lie. Something was ticking in my intuition from a young age. And then, um, I saw these, what are called vigils. They're called slaughterhouse vigils. And it's when a group of activists go outside a slaughterhouse and they wait for the trucks. Um, that transport the animals from the farms to the abattoir. They wait for them to pull in. And sometimes they'll have a good relationship with the slaughterhouse. So the slaughterhouse workers will actually allow them time to say goodbye to the animals and to, um, and to record and to, to, to create some footage of the animals going in or any behavior that they see. And so I saw that. And then one day I just, googled animal cruelty because I, I was just like I know that I'm contributing to something I just I'm not sure what it is um and that was it I was yeah I was vegan overnight and I went to my first vigil I think a month later my parents went on a pig slaughter vigil with Johnny Carbstrong is that yeah, Joey Carbstrong Joey Carbstrong mm. you heard of him yeah he's a prick <laughs> 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 yeah, <laughs> he, he he likes a bit of hero rush thing. He's done some good. Don't get, yeah, he he has done some good. But um, there's a, a particular group of famous animal rights activists, um, and um, yeah, they um they they get hero worshipped a lot, and it's become a very odd egotistical thing, hugely egotistical. I don't think my parents have put balaclavas on and gone on night raids 
they should. <laughs> is that, I'll take them out one is day. That, is that something you engaged in? Yeah, many times. How does that, I mean, how do you plan that? So how come you took it to the level of putting a balaclava on and doing night raids? So um, it became apparent that um, you could go into a farm in the middle of the night and rescue animals. Um, yeah. And um, so I wanted to get involved in that. I'd seen... When you I've, say rescue animals, like set them free or where do they go? No. So that has been done before. It ha- That has been done where a raid has happened in a farm and animals have just been let to, to just do their thing, run. They may... Yeah, whatever. And there's controversial, there's controversial, um, opinions about that type of rescue. Um, but no, we were more focused on rehoming animals, um, at an animal sanctuary. So there are specific animal sanctuaries around the country and world, um, that people don't really know about because they are for animals that are rescued from, um, either the farming industry or, um, laboratories, um, yeah, wherever. Um, and so, um, yeah, big ag was, was the thing and, and these farms, some of them were seeming sort of easy to get into. And so off we went into the middle of the night, masked up and a lot of it would be investigating as well. So more often than not, it would just be to get footage of inside these places because, um, we wanted to expose the expose the um, reality of um, what was behind these signs saying local, organic, free range, family run, that type of thing, um, and and the big ones, you know, and the and the mega farms as well. But um, you know, we found horrors in both of them. Yeah, with like what um, animals that had been mistreated, animals that were um, neglected. Um, the majority of the animals were neglected, like, um, and you know, with our belief system anyway, they shouldn't, animals shouldn't be bred into this world to be used as a product anyway. That, that is our stance, um, or my stance. Um, and so the conditions, the conditions were appalling. Like we're grown up and we walk down the, we walk down the supermarket aisle and we see these, happy smiley cows in these beautiful green fields and these chickens with all their feathers on looking brown and healthy and and lovely and little do we know that actually chickens are 42 days old when they're slaughtered for me and those chickens that are in the supermarkets that are that big are actually supposed to be this big but they're so, so pumped with growth hormones and in chicken sheds the lights are kept on 24 hours a day so that the chickens don't sleep all they do is eat and so they're getting fatter and fatter and fatter but none of them have any of their feathers none of them are in healthy none of them are in healthy looking shape I've been in, in a shed with tens and tens and tens of thousands and thousands of chickens and I've been in a local a very local organic free range family run farm and there was about 10 stacks and then about 10 rows of chickens all crammed into these tiny tiny little cages and it was called free range that farm because they had another shed with a tiny little window free range actually only means that there needs to be access to outside 
doesn't actually mean that they're outside and that they're running free range. So that could be a huge, huge shed, so big that the little door that they've got that um, allows them to call themselves free range at the end, most of the chickens don't even get a chance to get to the end of the sheds in the 42 days that they live in, in the shed. So, um, they'll say, yeah, so we did a lot of investigating, um, went into, um, some dairy farms. Um, there's some harrowing stories. Once I went into, I went, once I investigated a dairy farm in the day, in the middle of the daytime as well, but we were a bit risque as well sometimes, but stupid as well. Um, but also a little white lie can get you anywhere some, some days. And I just wanted to see the little baby calves. So the owner of the farm let me in and, um, dairy ca- um, calves are separated from their mum after 24 hours in the dairy industry. And so there's lots of these babies. And there was this one cow. <coughs> she was absolutely covered in sticky, muddy hay. And, um, the farmer said to her, look at her. Uh, she said, look at you. Look at you, stupid thing. You've been stuck in the ditch trying to get to her all night. And she'd been stuck in the ditch for 24 hours trying to get to her baby because she could get nose to nose with her baby through the barrier, but she wasn't allowed to go to the baby because she wasn't allowed to feed her baby because humans are buying her milk. And those babies, if they're boys, they're either turned into Ab- Aberdeen Angus beef or they're shot at two weeks old because males, male, male calves are not useful to the dairy industry. They cannot produce milk and they cannot produce babies. And so, um, all of these details, you know, without going into it and be, you know, being sitting here being an activist were contributing to me continuing this journey of wanting to investigate and find out the truth of something that I had been contributing to for 29 years. I loved eggs. I loved dairy. I loved cheese. I loved it all. I ate it all. I rode horses. I wanted to see the zoos. I used products that were tested on animals, you know, all of it. And it was, it's taken me a long journey to see animals as the individual beings that they are with interest and, and complex emotions and, um, intelligence. Did it take a toll on you psychologically? Because it's distressing to see this. Massive. You said it inspired you to continue, but it also got to be weighing you down. Yeah. It created this absolute desperation in us, this panic to do more, do more, do more for the animals, for the animals, for the animals constantly. And this is prior to learning about the intersectionality with regards to animal rights and human rights and how they are linked in a variety of different ways and how actually animal liberation is human liberation um, because of things like the biggest pig farms in the world being located in black and brown communities in California and all of their crops and things being sprayed with all of the stuff that the um, crops for the animals are being sprayed with. Like just, there's just so many different crossovers and layers to it that um, I didn't realize at first it was just for the animals, you know? And there was these cool activists on Instagram with these selfies in these pig farms. And then this footage of them going in, ballied up in the night, opening the cages, getting these chickens out. You know, it was harrowing, but so beautiful at the same time that these chickens are free. And then there was piglets and they were doing all these piglets. And then there was calves and rabbits and and it just became a thing and it was, it, we were desperate to do it. And we, um, there's this, um, worldwide, um, 
action um, called Meet the Victims. And um, it's when a group of people, they go into the farm and they occupy the farm. And I did that occupation three times. I, I shut down, we shut down a farm for the day. Um, all three of them were pig farms, I think. Yeah, all three of them were pig farms. I've had um, piglets die in my arms because they're so mal- malnourished. I've seen... Um, I've seen abuse in in front of my face um, with the way that farmers um, have dealt with the animals and slaughterhouse workers, like electric prods and, and, you know, things like that, trying to get them out of the slaughter trucks onto the kill floor. One day I begged a slaughterhouse manager for two hours to show me a slaughter and he let me in the slaughter room and I watched a horse being slaughtered. There's a horse slaughterhouse in Swindon. Um, a lot of the horses in the UK go to slaughter when they're... Because it's cheaper and it's easier just to lob them off to the slaughterhouse. How do they kill them? Um, they, they shotgun to the head with a stun gun, which doesn't actually knock them out unconscious completely. And then they slice the throat, I think. Pigs in Manchester... Did you watch that? I, I watched the first bit. They didn't let me... They He made me go out the room as soon as he was about to slice this... The horse's throat because he he didn't want me to see that because he knew how awful it was it had taken me hours to let me get in and to see this and then he said to me don't worry he's dead now this horse was not dead this horse was still moving with their eyes open but I wanted to stay really calm for the horse and let the horse know I was there this was not right was and I was like, oh yeah <sighs> yeah 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 I was literally as, as close as you are to me now with this horse and I loved animals, you know, and by then we'd created this huge connection with animals. Like it was, yeah, it was, it was an exceptional connection to their pain more than anything and how big this was. Like it's huge how much we use animals. It's beyond belief. And the thing is, is that the, the, the terrors and the horror are things that people don't know what they're buying into. So we're buying the lovely organic milk with the friendly cow, with the friendly farmers and the happy cows and the happy chickens, but it's far from the reality. And if we were, if a chicken goes from this size to this size in record time because of hormones, mm. and a human eats that, aren't they eating the hormones? Exactly. Exactly. And my, one of the biggest catalysts to my change and me wanting to, um, do this was because I did some research after my mum passed away with the links from, um, yeah, um, illness and disease and eating, consuming animal products. So, um, yeah, we're eating all of the crap. If, if an animal is rescued then by your, <coughs> your group, for example, in, in the night or whatever, and it goes to this refuge. What's the legality of that? Isn't that the property of the farmer and you just, you've just stolen something? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what's the consequences though? There's a lot of consequences. Yeah, you're definitely risking your freedom each time you do it, for sure. Um, but not only that, your safety as well. There's so much has happened now. <coughs> um, um, and going back as well, you know, with you saying like that, that's a lot like... 
it leads to fast burnout, especially things like vigils and not being able to do anything. That's why people were taking it a step further and going in and, and getting them out of there because vigils weren't cutting it. Watching these animals week on week going into these slaughterhouses and not being able to do anything unless there was the very odd time where we would beg and beg and beg and we'd get an animal released or an animal was injured and they're not legally allowed to go to slaughter if they're injured or unwell and we like something else would happen and so it was stepped up a notch and you know I did a minimal amount in comparison to some of the activists that I know that are out there who have been you know have been charged and did you get charged or anything no I wasn't charged no um but I do know people that have been to prison um, I mean, there's lots of members of the ALF, which is old school. That's going back years and years and years. The well, ALF you did end up in a legal situation where you were facing charges. I did, yeah. We were facing yeah. aggravated chest pass. There was 11 of us. What what happened there? It was a abattoir um, occupation. It was a shutdown of a abattoir in Kent. There were 10 of us. And so the prior to this action of ours that we did... Um, there was another grassroots organization, an animal rights organization, and they had put in some undercover cameras in this abattoir in Kent. And the footage was all leaked. It was all exposed. Um, the, um, slaughterhouse worker was walking over the backs of the sheep. And then there was, um, an occasion where the sheep is literally trying to leap out of the kill floor room. And they're supposed to be, um, they're supposed to be zapped on the head with the electric thingy, stun gun. But he couldn't get the sheep, so he zapped him on the nose instead. And of course, that was like terrible pain for the sheep. And there was just, there was a lot of different things like that that was going on. And that was nothing, like, that is absolutely nothing. Like, I know that sounds, it sounds awful, and it really was for that poor sheep. But that was like, it's almost like a delightful experience to watch in comparison to the some of the things that I've witnessed on and off the screen, um, really and truly. Um, like if we, yeah. Um, so the cops come out to that one? Yeah, the cops While come straight away. We went in at about three o'clock in the morning. The cops were there not long after at all. We had a silent policy, so we didn't say a word to them. So did they just come in? All day. They came in, tried to talk to us, tried to talk to us, took our water away from us. It was a boiling hot day. One of us passed out. <laughs> they didn't just grab you and pull you out? We were locked in. Oh, you were locked in? Oh, yeah. I was in a, I was in a cemented box. My arm was locked what? in in a cemented box with what? my... Um, with my um, girlfriend at the time, actually. You made cemented boxes? Mm, yeah. How's that work? One of one of the one of the people did um, learn how to make a, a a a cemented box, which is obviously so heavy that it just it, it has to. Well, they have to bring special tools and stuff. To get. <laughs> yeah, it took a lot of them to cut us out of it. Did it? Hours and hours. Hours and hours. Yeah, hours. <laughs> and some. So that's the whole. The intention is as well is to cause a com- an economic. I can't say economic, <laughs> economic damage. damage as well, which was happening until uh, until the end of the day when they killed the sheep anyway, and they killed them in front of some of us. So some of us was up on I wasn't. I was on the kill floor. I was right in front of the kill floor. The kill floor. Yeah, <clears throat> to stop them from taking the animals in. That's why up the cemented ones was 
there. There was another group of people up on the silo, which is where all the blood and guts go up and down, basically. <clears throat> so every 10 minutes, every so often, you would get this horrendous smell for 10 minutes. It was absolutely like, um, and that was going on. <laughs> Even though they weren't killing animals, they were doing other bits and pieces. The police were very much there for the slaughterhouse workers. They were laughing, drinking tea together, eating ice creams because it was a hot day. <clears throat> the slaughterhouse workers were sexually harassing me and my girlfriend all day, nonstop. Um, <clears throat> and so when they cut us out, they had to get them down from the silo. So we all played dead. We all decided to just make this as more, as difficult as possible for them, which is the whole idea to get media coverage for a campaign and things like that. You know, we wanted to be heard and to be seen because we were speaking up for these sheep. We had sanctuaries for them to go to. We said to them, if you release the sheep that you are planning to slaughter today, we will release ourselves from the equipment and we will go home. We've got, we've got, and this is, even though this, occasion we were arrested there's another couple of occasions which are big stories like this like with with the (coughs) how astronomical it was like it was just wild like a a sheep is like a couple of quid to them if that do you know what I mean whereas for us it was a life um but that was neither here nor there. We all played dead when we got arrested and um, the ones at the top had to be put in this like canoe basically and like slid down the thing. Yeah, it was mad. It took hours for them to cut us out. And the chief inspector gobshites bent down next to me at one point when that smell had had got come over because they'd, they'd started to kill the sheep, I think, by this time. Um, because they wanted to make the group at the top see the heads and the hoofs and the limbs that were coming out, and they did. They had to see them. So we'd we'd been there all day with these sheep. You know, the sheep were there in the um, what are they called? The paddocks, and we, you know, we were like there with them all day. Like even though we couldn't touch them or anything like that, we're like we're there for you. And then by the end of the day, we just saw their heads and their hoofs and their limbs coming out in like tubs, basically, and the smell of their blood and guts, like, like right next to shirts, us. Isn't it? So there's 20 or 30 police there or something, and they're all going, oh my God, oh my God, you know, that's disgusting, that's awful, rah, rah, rah. And the chief inspector, whatever his name is, bends down next to me and he goes, mm, lovely bit of roast dinner that is in my ear. Oh, oh my god, I'm not gonna say a word to you. And he bashed me over the head with a with a bag of something and then something went in my neck as well because they were just being so rough with us as they were cutting because they needed us to wear a, a mask whilst they cut because they had one of those things, one of those um saw things. Chainsaw. Yeah, to get us to get us out. Um yeah, then we was all in the cop shop for about 13 hours, I think. Were they, like, ask you questions and stuff? <laughs> yeah, we were all interviewed. None of us said a word. <laughs> that was um, that was interesting. We had some really good solicitors, really good solicitors. They smashed it for us. And it only went to court this year. Did it? Yeah, three years later, because of lockdown, it got postponed and postponed and postponed. And of course, a lot happens within that time as well. Um, 
me and the girl that I was with at the time, we had broken up. Um, we had a, an extremely dangerous and toxic relationship. I was, I was very abusive towards her, actually, in this round of relationship. Um, there were obviously things that both of us could have done to better both of our behaviours at times, but predominantly it was me projecting all my pain onto her because all we'd done from day one was see trauma. Like, I think I met her the night before we went, um, we, we'd met before as friends and then we got together the night before we went into a pig farm for the day and had to sit with these pigs that were gonna be eventually slaughtered for the day. It was harrowing and it was just trauma bond after trauma bond. Um, and, and there was just no space for healing whatsoever. It was just projection of pain nonstop. Um, so that was horrible because it's the ripple effect of, of putting yourself in this situation. Like slaughterhouse workers, they've got the highest, they've got one of the highest crime rates. They've got one of the highest domestic abuse rates, highest drug taking rates because what are you going to do after your full day of slitting throats all day or watching in Manchester and Bristol, the way that they kill the pigs is, is they lower them in a gas chamber. They put them all in this crate. You can go to the Manchester slaughterhouse or Bristol slaughterhouse and you can hear it. You can stand outside and you can hear the pigs or you can just YouTube and see the footage because there's footage of inside because this particular animal rights organization had put in secret cameras and filmed them and they're, they're all crammed in and they're lowered down into this gas chamber and they're screaming and kicking and, 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 um, thrusting to try and get out and then whatever. Um, they're burnt from the inside out. That's the whole idea with, with, is it carbon dioxide? I don't know. Um, anyway, so there's, yeah, it's just tra- trauma after trauma and, and the ripple effect, uh, ripple effect of it is, yeah, it can be hideous. So um, that was rough. And so, yeah, we all got arrested. Three years later, it finally went to court. Um, the dynamics of the group had obviously changed, so that was a bit awkward. But it was good to finally get it done. Um, the footage was showed in the courtroom, um, and other bits and pieces that I'm not even sure whether I can divulge yet, but, um, then the judge was diagnosed with cancer and had major surgery to go to have. And, um, within a couple of days, he'd said, actually, you don't need to come and see, you don't need to come to the court for the um, verdict, we'll do it over video call. And then another couple of days, it was, don't worry about turning up to the video call. And then it was, everybody's not guilty. One of your friends ended up with brain damage by a cop on one of these. Yeah, I wasn't there. And I don't even know whether it was in, was it in this country or was it another one? But yeah, a friend of a friend um, was caused brain damage because police are very violent towards us because they're protecting slaughterhouses and farms. They're not on our side. You know, hunt sabs, you know, the hunt sab groups that go out and they try and sabotage the hunts, they're out all the time and they're constantly having to deal with the cops, but the cops are never on their side. And and there's a lot of violence that goes down in, in sabbing, you know, people have been beaten to a pulp, um, put in hospital, limbs broken, ribs broken, faces smashed up, 
um, possessions smashed up. So much stuff goes down. And I've heard about a couple being beaten to a pulp in a farm. And this was during lockdown. So it's obviously getting more dangerous. And of course, the more that farmers and, and abattoir workers were clocking on to us, investigating and raiding and doing rescues the more they were tightening up and the angrier that they were getting as well this is their business like to them the animals are called livestock they're their product that they're selling so they're they're fuming you know they're angry um but i've also had some extremely powerful conversations with um slaughterhouse workers and farmers as well and we've all got a heart um so yeah it's it's very interesting it's been very very interesting that like psychology of it all um and um yeah it was also shit scary at times you know going into a farm in the middle of the night and trying to rescue an animal is hands down the biggest poo your pants situation (laughs) you're ever gonna be in because you don't want to get busted um because if you get caught that that animal's going back that animal's not coming with you that animal's going back and will be sorted so if you rescue an animal, the worst scenario is is that they're taken from you after that you've after you'd rescued them. And one night especially, this was magical. It was a it was a full moon, and we went to this um, farm, which was actually out. The the pigs in this particular pen were outside. It was an outside pen, and um, <coughs> and we managed. I, I was absolutely bricking it. I was so nervous beyond belief. And uh, we saw this one pig and he was laying down and the rest of them were all running around. And so I just jumped the fence, picked up the pig, got back over the fence and we (laughs) ran. And there was three of us and this pig was heavy. He was Mm. a few months old. Pigs are six months when they're killed for slaughter. Mm. So when they're that big, even Mm. though they look like they're old, they're not. Sheep are six months, pigs are six months when they're slaughtered. They're fattened up to be that big. They're not naturally that bloody big, you know. Little chicks are 40 days old. They're supposed to be like that. Mm. I've I've had rescue chicks um, at that age when they haven't been um, fed growth hormones and they're they're diddy little things. Um, But the trouble is any animal that is rescued from an industry, mostly chickens in particular, they don't survive because they're so genetically modified. They're not built to survive. They're built to live until a very, very young age when they're good enough to eat. So majority of the chickens that we would rescue would die within a few months. Mm. But a couple of the chickens that we'd rescued lived a very, very good life for like just over a year. You know, (laughs) it was great. And it was such a huge celebration when that happened. But (laughs) that's the shocking factor of it. Um, so yeah, one night, so we'd had, we got this pig. Oh my God, it was disastrous because you just have to be so fit running away with an animal in the middle of the night. You have to have lung capacity. And I definitely didn't have that. And so we finally get, we're literally just about to get to the car. We're about five meters away from the car and we see a torch and it's two cops and they're stood at the top of this hill. We've got this pig in our hands. (laughs) We just, all of a sudden, I just switch into this drama mode and say, make up some, bullshit story about finding this pig in the field and blah 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 and eventually the police let us go because we say we're going to take him to a vet and 
either they were very naive and not experienced police officers or they knew what was going on and they were just letting us just rescue a pig for the night and allow it, you know what I mean? Um, But that was a magical story. Um, And that, yeah, that pig is still alive and loving life. Yeah. So while all this was going on, your dad died. Yeah, so dad died when I was 32. He, He was a lifelong alcoholic. Um, him and his wife and his wife passed a year prior to his passing also of neck and throat cancer which mm-hmm. he also had so they were 24 a day smokers and would drink you know liters of whiskey and wine a day um it it was the very norm my dad being an alcoholic like growing up and stuff we was used to him stinking of whiskey at 11 o'clock on a saturday morning when he picked us up and things like that. He wasn't ever a violent drunk or anything, so that was quite nice. How old was he? He was, when he passed, um, how old was he? I don't know, like 60s? Yeah, early 60s? Yeah. Um, um, Yeah, so, you know, we had our fair share of times when we didn't get on. We were both addicts. So it was going to clash at some point. But we also had a bit of a place in each other's hearts because of our addictions. But yeah, it was bound to, it was bound to kill him in the end, bless him. He, he, yeah, he did last a long time. You know, they kept saying, like, come and say your goodbyes. And we'd mm. go and say our goodbye. And then a few months later, <laughs> he would still be around. So yeah, he, yeah, he did good. <laughs> and did lockdown change your life? So during lockdown, um, the strip clubs shut and we were the last industry to reopen as well. The very last industry to reopen during lockdown. I was in a relationship with that girl that, um, I'd met through, um, activism and it was very toxic and I was very abusive and badly behaved towards her numerous times. So it was a very upsetting year like a very highly emotionally draining year um or two and um and I also had um yeah and we and we were doing active we were doing as much activism as possible but it was also very difficult during lockdown as well it was yeah it was dodgy didn't really know what we were doing and when we, when we, when we could do it um and luckily at the time I had a sugar daddy who I'd just met um in my last in in the strip club in Bournemouth it's I was working in Spearmint Rhino um had that was my first club as well Fiora's only in Spearmint Rhino so I'd known that club for 15 years on and off. I went to the LA one of them and the Vegas one Did of them. Did you know? What yeah. were they like? Oh, I'll tell you later. I bet they were wild, <laughs> weren't they? Yeah, I bet. Um, <laughs> yeah, so... Um, oh, I can't remember what I was going to say. You said you had a sugar daddy. Yeah, that's it. I met this guy just before lockdown hit. What a touch that was because he saw me through lockdown and mm. I got a lot of money. What did yeah. he do? What for a living? Um, Insurance company. Insurance, yeah. You owned it? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he had a lot of money. A lot. And I got a lot of money from him. And that was very, very helpful. I'm very, very grateful for it. Um, Yeah, during that time, which was extremely lucky because so many people were obviously on their arses financially during lockdown. And I hadn't... um, 
I hadn't started webcamming yet. That wasn't really going to be an option for me at, um, at that time. So yeah, I was lucky, but I was faking a relationship with him. And then I was in a relationship that I didn't want to be in myself as well. So I was not in a good place at all. I was all sorts of angry and upset. Um, Do you mean the relationship with the woman? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I wasn't in love with her. I loved her, but I feel like it was much more of a a bond through the things, the experiences that we'd had together and the similarities and the compassionate hearts that we had as well. So it was, yeah, it was, it was very bizarre. And I'd always been with men mostly, but... It was a very, it was kind because it was feminine and, and that's, and that was very nurturing during a time of witnessing just awful things. Yeah. I can't believe the amount of family tragedy you had because the next thing your sister gets diagnosed. Yeah. Yeah. 2020 COVID. Yeah. <sighs> I know. And right. The thing is with this is that my eldest sister, she was, um, I mean, we've, we've been close to my mum and dad the whole time. There, there's never been any separation whatsoever. It was mum and three girls and then, and their, their dad being an all right dad type thing, like as and when he, he could and had the capacity, which I have a lot more compassion for now I know much more about addiction and alcoholism and so um my mum my my sister was my mum's full-time carer she she dropped everything in Australia and and left her life in Australia including her boyfriend and came to be mum's full-time carer so her life was zapped from her like she she just went into a shell of herself and then dad got ill. Uh, uh, no, sorry. Then dad's wife got ill and she became a bit of her carer too. Cause she was very good at this by now. And then dad was ill and she became dad's carer also, you know, managing things like the nurses coming in and the medication and, um, the finances and just all of the bits that go along with, with dying and with being, having a terminal prognosis. And so we're like, okay, you might get a, a five minute break now, sis, you know, you've done your time. And within a year, she was diagnosed with a grade four um, breast cancer herself. And so, <coughs> first of all, we, there was no word terminal. So it was like, okay. Um, and then um, it spread to, and then she got the all clear in February this year and then got told that it spread to her lung so she now has a secondary lung cancer it's actually a form of breast cancer but in her lungs and recently it spread to her second lung as well Mm. and she's 41 years old she's 42 in December so young really young (coughs) Mm. so then the, the most recent business venture was the webcamming was it yeah. Yeah. Um, what What gave you the idea for that then? Because of the lockdown, was it? Yeah, my friend had done it for years, webcamming. I'd known girls that had done it and she kept going on about it. And I was like, oh, it's not for me. I can't bother. You know, stripping was my thing. It was, I was part of the furniture at strip clubs and it was just easy for me. Um, and I'd become a, a top earner by this time as well. I was making, finally, I was making money and not doing drugs. So it was, it was a good situation. Um, and then, um, yeah, then my sugar daddy and I broke up and, um, I knew I needed to make some money myself. 
Um, Why did you guys break up? I couldn't hold down the act anymore. Mm. It was he. He was so irritating towards <laughs> to, to me. I couldn't pretend anymore yeah. that I fancied him or loved him um, anymore. Um, and it, yeah, it got it. It, it just. I just blew up in the end. Like you can only take, you can only take so much of something. I think it definitely the fact that I was with that girl at the time as well, woman. It didn't help because I was just not in a good place either at home or there. If that if it was one or the other, I might have been able to handle things better. But I didn't handle any either of the situations very well at all. So um, I. Tried to take my own life at the end of my relationship with her. I popped an enormous amount of tablets um, because I was seeking her attention. Mainly, I was doing it as a desperate cry for, please um, give me what I need, um, which was a cruel thing to do um, to myself and to her. Um, but again, my body is pretty clever these days and rejected all of the tablets. And so I was very lucky because it should have gone. I'd, yeah, it was an enormous amount. And that was only, uh, yeah, that was three years ago. Um, and then things started to, um, slowly get better. Um, how did you adjust to webcamming? Um, with ease. I loved it straight away. I was absolutely obsessed. Because they're at a safe distance, aren't they? It was great. Yeah, I loved it. I was on it for hours and hours and hours. Total addictive behavior with it because I was making so much money. And I was loving the fact that I was getting all this lovely attention. And yes, they're behind a screen. Anything goes. So it was so interesting and fascinating from the word go is it just like they look at you or do you look at them as well you can do both but first of all depending on what's on most of the sites are like this you can have a a preview where they can come in and they will see you and you will see them typing and they'll have a certain amount of time to have a little chat with you and then choose to go to a private session with you to a private camera in that private camera they can say do you want to do cam to cam and you'll turn it on so that you can see them as well which a lot of a lot of them like because they've got things to show you trust me <laughs> like what oh, loads of stuff loads oh my god come on oh, oh my god so it, more stories came from has come from webcam in this like in the shock factor than came from 15 years of in person and really? and strip club work yeah like you know i had to, I, I did a few in person things that were very bizarre and odd in Spain, like what? Um, like one old guy. He was he was about in his seventies or something. Tiny, tiny, tiny little guy, and he liked me because I was tall and muscular, and he loved the fact that I could beat the shit out of him if I wanted to. <laughs> and so he used to get me to squeeze his head between my legs, between my knees. So I wasn't naked or anything like that. He just wanted me to squeeze his little head. Which wasn't a problem <laughs> between my knees, and tell him how much more of a powerful and stronger person I was than him, and he'd get, he'd get me to stand next to him and tower over him and have pictures just of me stood next to him because he liked the fact that I was just bigger and stronger than him, and that was it. I didn't have to touch anything. Was or he do a high anything. flyer as well? 
<coughs> minted. Yeah. There was a lot of... I, I think I, I, I did, like, a birthday party once for some, I don't know, like, the son of a prince or something like that. There was a lot of, like, a lot of money out in Port Venus in Marbella. There's a lot of, yeah, rich people um, from other places, too. So, yeah, when I started webcamming, instantly hooked um, and just spent so much time on there. And, yeah, just being behind a screen felt good. Like, felt nice not to have to go home at the end of the night and be covered in grime, you know, grimy strip club sweat. <laughs> Do you have to be discerning with these people, even though they're at a safe distance, that the requests sometimes become unusual or bizarre or unethical? Or... Absolutely. Yeah, regularly I get illegal requests. Regularly I get um, um, people with who are yeah, regularly. And how do you shut that down? So this is a really controversial <laughs> subject as well because there's this big belief system that if they are playing out their fantasy with us then they won't take it elsewhere and they they won't act upon it actually in real life and I've also had this conversation <coughs> quite openly with a on the phone once he told me his story and that was he was because some of them are really open about their own story some of them are really open like I've got daddy issues I've got mummy issues like this is why I like this thing and you're like okay cool like, um, and it's not always okay, cool, obviously. Um, but I, you know, I had this one guy and he was sexually abused, um, at the, at a young age. And so he, he liked young kids and I mean young kids. He told you that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very open about it. It took a while with this particular guy, but there's other guys that the moment you say, go on, they'll go. As soon as they know that they're in a safe place to do so, they will. And sometimes I do it because I want to investigate a bit more. Sometimes I do like not, not act it out ask them like make them believe that they can talk about it more because I want to know I'm really interested as well and also how how do I know what is the safe what is the safest option to take is the safe option to allow this guy to come at the fantasy that he's got in his mind with me or is the better option to do something about it if I was to report every single come across I'd be reporting more than I'd be making money it's really common yeah I wonder what the viewers think of this put in the comments what you think about do you just go with it to help them get it out of the system to prevent a victim or do you think that's just further encouraging that behavior and it'll create more victims let us know in the comments I'm curious about that do you think you could bring one on to talk about it no no even if they were disguised Maybe. Because this is something we've been trying to get to the bottom too. Cause... I know. And this is the hard thing as well, because you're asking, fu you're asking viewers, ask sex workers, and they might have a definite different opinion mm. and more of an expansive opinion as well. Because we've had open and honest conversations. We're not always acting. 
we've actually, you know, I've been down in nitty gritty. I've, I've cried with customers. But I've had customers crying, you know, everything that you can imagine has been exposed and spoken of. And when they're behind a screen, they feel safe enough to do that, which could be even more dangerous as well, is the fact that actually it's perpetuating the fact that they've got this fantasy and this mm. idea in this in their head. And now they can get away with talking about it and wanking over it all the time. Um, so... Yeah, it's not one or two, it's not the odd story. It's not a rare occasion that someone comes on and says, hey, can you be my um, eight-year-old kid oh my God. or whatever. Oh, it goes younger than that. Oh, yeah, that's like, yeah, that's not the youngest. The viewers right now are getting like, oh. Yeah, it's minging, absolutely like, yeah, shuddering, absolutely. Because our mission statement on this channel is to end the war on drugs and mass incarceration and go after these people and put them away because mm. of the harm they cause. And mm. um, some of the experts we've interviewed about what goes on in their heads, I mean, the conclusions that we've had are things like for chemical castration and longer sentences, but the government just doesn't do anything. It's hard. What's underneath this? What's underneath it? What, like, you know, where does it come from? Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah, but it doesn't give them a pass, does it? No, 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 no. I don't mean that. I just mean, like, along with any punishment, which, Mm. yeah, which is absolutely Mm. justified. I mean, for, for that person to change and to never commit that crime again. There has to be... Cut off the testosterone. <laughs> there has to be a new person, which which means exploring what the fuck happens in the first place. Yeah, I agree. Definitely. You've got to, go to, you've got yeah. to understand the root cause. Otherwise, they need to be locked up forever because you can never, ever guarantee that they're not going to explore that again. Because I've put it out there, you know, to viewers with, with Don Paul's, should we bring one of these people on the channel just to try and get to the bottom of it? And they're all like, you know, how are you going to sit in the presence of this person without wanting to kill him? That's, that's, and I completely understand that. But we had one guest on, I think it's Dr. Sarah Good, and she actually took one onto a documentary. And this was one who didn't act out on his thoughts, but mm-hmm, thought it mm-hmm. all the time. And he said, I'm coming on this documentary. And he put his name out there and he had, a, he was married, wife, kids, everything. He said, I'm doing this to help society because I want you guys, if you, if you, if the attitude is just lynch us, you will never understand us. He said, I'm telling you now what goes on up here. So you, society can come up with. So what did he say? I, I can't remember specifically, but I'll, I can, I can try and find it and, and show it to you. Yeah. 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 That'll be interesting to see. Yeah. It, it, it's really different as well because every single person has a different circumstance and a different approach to it, and a different fantasy. Like it's, it's complex. It's really complex. Yeah. So um, this guy that was on the phone, he kept ringing me. It's the one who was attracted to eight-year-olds. Mm, yeah. Um, I think he might have even liked them younger. Actually, mm. this one particular guy. Yeah, I think he was like more along the lines of six, seven years old, I think. Yeah. He didn't seem that old himself, this guy. Mm. Um, I would say he might have been in his 30s or something. So, had you played along with him for a bit to get him to tell you these things? Yeah, Yeah. a little bit. Like, not to the point where my own morals were Mm. um, not being um, considered. But definitely to the point where, 
and also in my mind is that I want to help others. I want to, you know, protect children. So how can I find out what I need to find out in order to implement any type of help of any sort? Well, we need to understand the why. And so I try and let them talk sometimes, depending. Every circumstance is individual, it's different. Um, and none of them are nice and none of it's okay. Um, but sometimes there's enough space for the conversation to unfold a little bit more for me to get a little bit more details to try and piece this puzzle together. Um, but right now I've got no answers, no correct answers anyway. I think I just try and tap into my intuition and try and do what I think is best and safe. <clears throat> I know you said one would probably not come on, but just ask the viewers then, do you think that would be something that would benefit society for us to have one on and to just actually question that person as to what had led to that? Or do you think that's just a completely no-go area and and not to do that? Do you think it would be better to get someone that had committed? Convicted one? No, not necessarily convicted, but someone that had actually, yeah, committed... um, rather than someone oh, who's, just makes you feel uncomfortable, who's it, not done anything but ha- is a paedophile because they have their, their, you know, this strong... Um, One who's just got a desire for it, you mean, that's not yeah, a doubt. Yeah. I think that would be the best place to start with that, yeah. I reckon I might be able to pl- pluck someone out of the crowd. We would, dis- we would disguise <laughs> the voice and the face and Yeah, everything. yeah. Um, it might take a while. Okay. But if there's... Yeah, it might take me a while, but... Um, Maybe, yeah, maybe. It's definitely, um, yeah, it's definitely common. It's definitely out there. And, yeah, there's lots of different opinions as to how we should deal with it. Let's go over to the other kinks uh, in here. And here it says um, there's a huge variety of kinks you've come across. Yeah, Massive variety. Through webcam. Yeah. And what are they then? Yeah. And it's amazing how um, I think that men that walk into a strip club obviously think that they have to be a particular way in a strip club. Um, And as soon as they're on a webcam, it, it just changes. They like completely, they're completely vulnerable and they just openly express all of these mad kinks and fantasies. And it's just so funny because you just think, look at you being all sensible and stuff in the strip club with your friends when actually you like to have a tennis racket shoved up your ass. You know what I mean? Like, it's so funny. Um, I've had everything from, um, I've had one customer that used to, go to this prostitute and collect the used condoms that she'd used, whether they were black men, white men, brown men, it didn't really matter. He would collect them. But if they were in a black condom, it was definitely black man's cum, <coughs> which a lot. And this is one of the most popular kinks now is white is it's called cut cold and it's white guys and they like white girls they like to watch white girls be fucked by black guys and they want black guys to take over the world. So they want black guys to impregnate all white women so that there's no white men anymore. And they like to put themselves down and we're supposed to (coughs) say how much of a slut we are for black guys and we're supposed to put them down as white. 
guys and they love it absolutely love it and it is it's one of the most common things it's so common it's it's like it's just really normal it's like someone walking into a shop and buying a normal thing rather than like a special thing one day yeah it's really really common and regular yeah i was bracing (laughs) then for you to say what happens with these condoms oh yeah i'll tell you that bit next (sighs) yeah that's just just um get filling all the filling all the details because there's so much like honestly it would take it would take a long time to tell you everything but this guy he used to um he'd be in his office and it's funny because for some guys like this is like the be all and end all of their week like they'll probably prepare for this big glorious royal wank (laughs) (laughs) and so this guy's sitting in his office he's got his poppers he's got his full gimp gimp mask and he's got his condoms is used condoms from from the from, from other the people. Yeah, from other people. We don't know these people. We don't know who's coming in there. He just knows that they're men that have gone to this prostitute. <coughs> Fair play to her. I hope she charged him a lot of money. Um, and uh, then he would, and then he'd had a li- he ha- had a little cup, and he had um, elastic band around his balls and his cock so tight that they were actually. Pur- like purple it you're watching dang- this oh yeah i was making him do it all um so then i would make him sniff the poppers and get really high <coughs> and then he would um he'd have a little wank in between with his balls actually like they looked like they were going to explode sometimes i'd be so nervous for some of my clients because i'd be so worried about the things that they put their willies and their balls into <laughs> Um, and so then he would get the con, what would he do? First of all, he would, oh yeah, he'd, um, he'd come into a cup and I'd make him swig that and keep it in his mouth. His own? Yeah, his own, oh God, yeah, that's, oh God, it's so normal. These guys have to drink their own calm, it's mental. And then he'd pick up his black condom and he'd go like this and I'd, and he'd, <laughs> and he'd squeeze, squeeze it all the way down the condom into his mouth. So now he's got what you call a cum cocktail. Oh, my throat's like. Are you heaving? Everyone, look at you. <laughs> Nasty, isn't it? Oh. I know. And so it takes then, a lot to shock us. So that's him. I know. This is what's making me feel much better is the fact that I've managed to get something to shock you after all you've seen and and heard. <clears throat> so then he'd have his cum in his mouth, and then some other guy's cum in his mouth, and then he would either do one more or he would he would gargle it oh yeah and that's the part where I had to turn oh, it on mute it. because that's when I started heaving he would gargle it he'd actually go back and go like this. and he had someone else's a stranger's cum in his mouth and his own cum in his mouth like yeah cum tastes rank so I don't even know why you're doing that I'm actually speechless uh, it's disgusting this isn't is it just stunned me um there was a guy, there was, there's a guy that, um, I keep talking about it like it's in past tense, but it's only like, <coughs> it's only like yesterday that I had my last kinky call. Um, there's a guy and he had a, 
a, a FinDom, which is a financial dominatrix. It's a, it's a dominatrix that just demands money, basically. Like, I've dipped my toes into it a few times. I do a variety of things. I don't really call myself a dominatrix or a sub or blah, 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 because I can do all all of it or as much as I want to do, basically, and I'm or what I'm happy to do with. So there's one guy um, who's one of my subs, and he had a dom before, and um, he had sex with a load of guys um, behind his wife's back, like loads of gangbangs and stuff like that. But she also used to make him do stuff whilst he was at home, on camera to her, whilst he was having a wank at home. And so these things would include... Like one day he had to get his wife's wedding dress out of the wardrobe, lay it out on the bed. He spunked all over it. Then he shat all over it and then pissed all over it and had to leave it for his wife to come home to. So she came home that day from work, went upstairs to go and put her nice joggers on and saw her wedding dress laying there, her lovely, beautiful wedding dress covered in shit, piss and cum. How did he explain that? Well, he would get busted like that and he would explain that he's got these he's got this um fetish, this fantasy, and she would and she stayed with him. And then one day he paid his Dom late and she told everyone everything. She sent all the videos of him having sex with loads of different men to his wife all his workmates, his family, everyone saw everything. She exposed the lot, everything he'd ever done. And I think his wife still stayed with him. Yeah, that's the shocking part for me. And there's always kids involved, but I think, wouldn't you want, your, wouldn't you want him to be away from your children? He's a weirdo. Yeah, so that was repulsive. I couldn't believe that. I was like, oh, my God, your poor wife. Like, that's just horrible. Um... See a lot of um a lot of drugs on there, lots and lots of addicts on there. Like takes up takes one to know one and I you know, I see the, the gearheads that have got serious problems. And I it's really cute because I get a little text from them every so often saying, Been clean thirty two days <laughs> and then the my, next my week brain's still grappling with what you just <laughs> said about this man in the wedding dress. I've got a question. Go on. Do you think that that was a bit mean of the Dom to do that because of the repercussions in no. his, to his wife and stuff? No. Or do you think he had it coming? Yeah, I've, I, this is a while, a while now that I've had this response. No. Uh, first few years of m- my sex work career, I might have been like, oh, you know, have some morals. No. You, you choose to walk in the strip club. You choose to open up the webcam. You choose to explore this. You choose to send that payment. You, that's your your choice. Why should they want to be more and more deviant? Any responsibility for it? There's an incentive for them to be more and more deviant. That's how they get the rocks off. Yeah, okay. the worser it is, the better it is for some of them. The more risky it is. Like one guy um, gave me his his girlfriend's number. Yeah, and whilst I was on the phone to him, I was messaging her pictures of his cock and stuff, saying like aren't you worried, blah, 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 I'm in your house, I'm next to your blue sofa and all of this stuff. I wasn't, but she didn't know that. She's like, who the fuck are you? And what was the result of that? They broke up in the end. Um, But he was a little shit, like fancy doing that. He just got off on that. Yeah, nasty little prick. Um, I don't know how she didn't... There's so many women that must know as well, must have an inclination of these these kinks and stuff, you know? Because a lot of... 
a lot of guys like it. I had this one guy from Yorkshire and he had a wife as well. And he used to like getting dressed up in frilly and sexy um, lingerie, women's lingerie, which is very common. Oh my God, the amount of guys I've seen in like sexy fishnets and full blown like a mate, like they've got better lingerie than me, all of these men, trust me. Like it's absolutely mental. And they go, they're like, do I, they want to be girly. It's really bizarre. They're not gay, but they like to be girly and they like to be sexy. No, they'll get with trans people. Not transsexuals, transvestites. Ah, don't even know whether it's that, you know, Mm. it's really odd. It's really bizarre. Like they like putting their wife's dirty knickers on. They like feeling sexy in like heels and stockings. They love getting pegged, but they're not gay. They're like happily married for 2.4. Yeah, it's weird. I don't know. Not all of them are not gay, obviously. I'm not saying that. There's lots of bisexuality, but I don't know. Maybe it's because I don't know. So what? So do you think like you know if people are not harming other people, it's okay? basically um well no i if if i caught my partner doing some of these stuff there's no way in hell that i would be with them but there's a whole range of stuff you've just described yeah so if he was wearing your dirty knickers what would you what (laughs) if your partner was wearing your dirty knickers what one day when i walked in um what did i do I'd have to find out what their kink was. And if I was okay with it, then I'd stay with them and I'd explore it with them. And if I wasn't okay, then I'd break up with them because otherwise they'll explore it elsewhere. Because don't you think, like, if if they did that, they should have, like, asked you beforehand, can I wear your dirty knickers in his why? Oh, my God. So this one guy (laughs) once... Oh, this is brilliant. This is so funny. Joe's face through this is just... Through this (laughs) Is it fun? Is it fun? (laughs) You're what? Worried? (laughs) Yeah, it's very worrying. There's this one guy, and he was doing some work in this this house once. Oh, my God, this was terrible. Um, Well, he was contracted to do work in the house. Yeah, and she was downstairs, the wife. The man must have been at home. The husband must have been at home. So he's on cam to me and knocking one out and he goes into her bedroom, opens her knicker drawer, this woman that owns the house, gets out a pair of her knickers, comes in the knickers and then puts the knickers back in the drawer. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Holy shit. Can you imagine? The, what, the aftermath of that? Exactly. The woman's going to probably go at the husband or something like that, thinking it's him or something. Yeah. <laughs> DNA test required? DNA test required. Yeah, yeah. There's lots of bits and pieces like that. Um, Yeah, one guy, his girlfriend had gone, his girlfriend's friend had come to their house, dropped off her suitcase, and then his girlfriend and her friend had gone off for the weekend. So it was just him in the house alone, but his girlfriend's friend had left her suitcase there, and he went through her stuff and went through her dirty knickers, and she had been on her period as well and he was like licking and doing all sorts of stuff with her dirty knickers and this is his girlfriend's friend you can't even trust your boyfriend not to go through your friend's (laughs) dirty knickers I think what is so mind-blowing is that 
some of them have no idea and that these guys are just normal, you know, completely and utterly normal. And then all of a sudden the girl's friends away for the weekend and they've got this dirty little kink that comes out and, and then they're this normal boyfriend again. It's just wild. Like you just have not got a clue what your boyfriend's doing. Would you say that <coughs> people in certain professions are kinkier? For example, people in authority, judges, cops, or would you say that this is just across the board? Because um, we've heard from other people in you know these professions that you know if you're a, if you're like a judge and you're in pa- you've got all that power over society, if you can go and dress up as a woman and do whatever on the weekend and you know it's the complete opposite and get whipped and yeah. caned and pancaked yeah. and all this stuff, <laughs> it's it's like uh, a pressure release for them. Yeah, you do see that actually. You do see people with money and power then going the other way and wanting to be told what to do. Um, and then you also get it the other way round. So it's much more submissive men looking for domin- dominating women. But when the dominating men come along, it is, yeah, it's crazy. Like they're just dark and are they the darkest ones no the yeah race play can be a bit dark you get like like black people coming on wanting me to be racist to them quite a lot and things like that that's a bit uncomfortable not for not for me because it's at me, but uncomfortable because I don't want to be racist towards someone. But if it's their, I feel like that's their prerogative. That's their king. That's a person of colour and they're asking me to do something. They've given me their, very much given me their consent. So it's a bit more of a safe, safer circumstance, even though it's really unpleasant saying the type of things that I've had to say and things like that. What other situations have created moral dilemmas? Um, um, that, that stuff is the stuff that shows up the most, to be honest with you. Is there anything that's made you think, I need to contact the police? Yeah, yeah, there's been a couple of occasions where I'm like, do I do something? I just tell my, tell the people that run the sites and stuff and let them deal with it. Yeah. Because I don't like cops. No. Um, and I can't take it all on because otherwise I will be getting, I'll be jumping down a rabbit hole of becoming a hunter. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So you have to just have this like level of let some of it go, not let it go because it's okay or anything like that, but for your own well being as well. Grief. Yeah. So what is your life like now? Um, good. <laughs> yeah, I'm still webcamming, um, which I enjoy. Um, it's good. I've got an, a nice, good client base, which is great. Which is about to increase after the video <laughs> goes out. <laughs> I'm not that at all. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, if they want the if they want the um, instructions on the squirting, <laughs> oh, yeah. we forgot that. Bit, <laughs> Just we? let them know my cash up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Are you on like Instagram or anything like that mm. where people can we can include your links? Um, Twitter is Jessica Love UK. And my Instagram is Jessica Love underscore UK. Yeah, Jessica Love is my work name. And if it is work, then it is always Jess or Jessica. If it is not, then it is Shah. Um, but yeah, life's good now. Um, You're a yogi. <laughs> I am a yogi. Um, I practice yoga a lot. I still train on and off the pole. I um, sold my pole dancing company just before lockdown. I had a long-term client. She'd become a really good friend of mine. She was very good at pole. I wanted to stop. I wanted to focus on activism, so I sold her the business. So good she, timing. It was good timing. It wasn't very great for her. Then she went and got pregnant, so I covered her maternity leave and ended up teaching for her anyway <laughs> for another six months or so. Um, but we're very much still connected. Um, I teach workshops there, so I'll go and do like a specialised workshop, like an exotic pole or something like that, teach the girls some tricks and and stuff um but I don't have the business anymore which feels nice and wanted to do other things um I wanted to set up um and be a facilitator of breathwork um circles and meditations and yeah more of the um yeah more of the holistic and spiritual um uh side of life um but I don't think I'm ever gonna stop this work to be honest with you I see these older, older ladies on there rocking it. And I think, good for you. Like, it's given me the freedom in my life that I've, what I've wanted to be able to do the things that I want to do when I want to do them. Um, so, we, yeah. We interviewed Kerry Katona and she was like, this house, this Lamborghini, all paid for by my OnlyFans. <laughs> oh, really? She said, I'm a she? MILF, I've got these tits, and yeah. I'm going <laughs> to... Oh, does she do that it was, now? That was her yeah, attitude, was it? Yeah, of course she does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's made in millions of it. Yeah, so good. I wish I had the... Well, actually, I don't wish I did. The thing is with OnlyFans, um, and, like, being a content creator, is that it requires a lot of your time as well off the camera like taking them photos and doing all the videos and blah 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 blah. so we've only fans for me i mean hopefully it might get boosted a little bit now <laughs> but um oh so you're on only fans yeah yeah i'm yeah. on only fans um i'm on a couple of other different sites and stuff as well so my content is there but content creating it for me i'll get a whatsapp um message and I'll get asked to do a personalized video or do a call or something like that and I quite like that type of work um but having to pre-do loads of pictures and videos and stuff all the time especially when you did 15 years on and off doing your makeup for the strip club every single night and stuff it's a lot of of work um and also, you know, the years where I was um, dabbling in modelling and exploring that, like photo shoots and stuff. So, yeah, there is so much money to be made, definitely. But it does, yeah, it takes some work. Definitely, you have to put the hours in and the screen time and stuff as well. And I like to have my time offline and, you know, not be on, yeah, not be on my phone 24 hours of a day so sometimes money isn't as important to me um because I'd prefer to yeah have a, a nice healthy head because it can be very you know um people compare a lot and stuff there's a lot of competition out there so if you're a girl and then you're going on and you're scrolling past these other girls that have got 
20 however many followers and they're in the top 0.0001% of OnlyFans and all of that stuff can get very competitive and it you, you can get in your head about it. Um, so I, I like the way that I've made my money through webcam because they're there for me because they like me. So that's worked. So have you defeated your demons? No, not all of them. No. <laughs> no, not all of them. Some of them, you know, I sit here in, in relatively good health and I have a, a roof over my head and all the things that I need and, um, yeah, and meet my needs. Um, which is great, which is a dream come true, really. When I was squatting in a bed set with a drug dealer at some point in my life, knocking on death's door. So, yeah, we're getting there. <laughs> You've took us on a hell of a journey. I mean, <laughs> from, you know, just from the very beginning, the growing up, the modeling, and then all of a sudden we're on Peter Nygaard's island. Mm. Then we're in Secrets of London. <laughs> It's just all to the present day. I mean, it's a, it's an epic story, isn't it? Have you thought about writing a book? Very much so. For a long, long time. Yeah, I'll be writing my book. Um, yeah, I think there'll be more than one because there's just so much to say. Like, I feel like there's just there's just so many more stories, you know, yeah. especially now that I've spoken about a few of them. I'm like, oh, yeah, and this, and this, and this. Um, lots of, you know, lots of horrible things that have happened that have taken, you know, created shape, um, in my life. And, um, yeah, I look forward to writing about it and especially about addiction and sex work, but addiction especially has just, yeah, been such a huge part in my life. I've, I've been an addict, I think, since the day that I was born. So I, really look forward to exploring that and what sobriety and recovery looks like for everybody as an individual. I'm not really about the AA life and the NA life. I just think there's just some, I don't know, it doesn't sit well with me. So I'm interested to share my story so that maybe other people who are on their own doing their own thing can maybe relate and, um, yeah, take something from it, hopefully. It's very inspirational. So a huge thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Let us know in the comments what you thought about this video. All the Shah's links will be down there below the description box if you want to reach out and follow. And huge thanks to Joe and James for um, you know filming with us today. It's, uh, it's been a month or so since we've done some in-studio podcast, so it's good to be back to it. Yeah, yeah. Do you know the Arizona prison handshake? No, shame. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Right. Oh, that's all right, isn't it? Do it again swiftly. Bing, bing. Cheers. 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 Well done. Brilliant. Yeah. Chet Sandu's book is finally available worldwide on Amazon. He's one of our most viral podcast guests ever. The book is called Self Made, Juice Paid, an Asian kid who became an international drug smuggling gangster. Do you want to read some of the back, Jen? Yeah, go the blurb. In 1999, Chet Sandu was arrested at gunpoint in Alicante Airport for smuggling the largest quantity of illicit pharmaceutical drugs in Spanish history. Interesting. Overnight, he went from living in the shadows of the Costa del Crimes underworld 
to be labelled a notorious supervillain in the international press. Incarcerated alongside murderers, rapists and terrorists in a super maximum security wing. He had to navigate a world of murderous knife fights, prison breaks, drug taking and high stake power plays. Good bedtime read. In self-made Jews paid learn how a British-born Asian kid with disabilities raised in a corner shop emerged as a protector of his family from racist thieves and hooligans. Be prepared to be entertained, informed and offended by Chet's no-holes-barred account of raves, drugs, bodybuilding, entering the fashion industry. Did you know that he dated Kylie Minogue and Naomi yes. Campbell? <laughs> latest interview. Working the doors and life in one of the world's deadliest places to be incarcerated. If you enjoyed Chet's podcast series with us, there's a lot more detail in the book. Check it out. Worldwide on Amazon, ebook, paperback, and audiobook.